0: Case number 23-3190, United States of America versus Donald J. Trump Mr. Sauer for the Appellant, Mr. Van De Vendor for the Appellate.
1: Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the Court, John Sauer appearing on behalf of the Appellant, President Donald J. Trump gag order in this case installs a single federal district judge as a filter for core political speech between a leading presidential candidate and virtually every American voter in the United States at the very height of a presidential campaign. The order is unprecedented and it sets a terrible precedent for future restrictions on core political speech. The Supreme Court said in Republican Party of Minnesota against White that we have, quote, never allowed the government to prohibit candidates from communicating relevant information to voters. And it's not the role of the government to dictate what, is, what topics are appropriate or uh, uh, necessary to discuss in the context of a political campaign. The gag order does both of those things. Cases involving gag orders imposed on criminal defendants who are political candidates, the Brown and Ford decisions, have both given, in the words of Brown, the candidate, quote, absolute freedom, virtually unrestricted ability to comment on both the case in front of him and make a, a, a public statements that relate to his campaign as it relates to the case. So this is a radical departure from the only cases that have considered this particular uh, form of restriction, a restriction on a criminal defendant who is also for, for campaigning for public office, and it does so in the context of a hotly contested campaign for the highest office in the united states of america in addition the gag order another unprecedented break with uh, that with, with jurisprudence relies completely completely on an un uh, on an insupportable heckler's veto theory the gag order does not say hey your statements are going to you know poison the jury pool by communicating directly with the uh uh, uh directly with you know the, the the members of the jury pool what you have here is a rationale that says Uh, uh, This speech, the speech that that is targeted by the gag order, might, there's no evidence of this, but it might someday inspire some random third party to engage in some action that might result in harassment or threats to witnesses. This is a quintessential Heckler's veto, which the Supreme Court has not traditionally subjected to scrutiny, even very strict scrutiny, but said is just categorically unconstitutional. And the reasons for that, if you look at the, the Heckler's veto cases, in virtually every case, the argument justifying the Heckler's veto is we have absolutely compelling reason to do this because the speech that we want to suppress is going to inspire rioting, violence, injury, death, whatever it is, and the Supreme Court has said again and again you cannot do that. All the gag order cases relied on the government do not address this particular heckler's speech, a uh, 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 kind of rationale for criminalizing speech. And the, and the Supreme Court has held us again and again that that is not a permissible rationale to silence anyone. Uh, and those cases go back decades, and that government rationale goes back to at least the city of New York in the 1860s. Would your
0: position be any different if it were a year ago? If the timer were just a year ago, so we were much further removed from a political campaign, would your position be the same or different? Uh, certainly a year
1: ago, we would still be in the midst of a political campaign. I believe President Trump- What are we not
0: case. in a political campaign? Uh, 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 right, okay. I don't mean to
1: fight the hypothetical, but if you're saying that it was made in a, a year time, ago. If it was a year ago. Right, right. If, if it was last a,
0: no, Last November. At a time when he was not
1: a presidential candidate. All the other rationales- certainly that still certainly
0: still engaged in political speech.
1: Absolutely, core political speech. So, would your would position
0: be any different a year ago?
1: I think the gag order would still be unconstitutional. Would your
0: position be any different? I don't. I don't see how. It would okay. Be so, the fact that we have a campaign going on does not matter. What matters to you, is, and this is still political speech. I think, um, which gets very high protection, no doubt.
1: I, I, I wouldn't put it that way. I think that the fact that the campaign and others, we have a whole series said of your position reasons. would be
0: no different if it were a year ago. Our position would be that it's still unconstitutional,
1: but the campaign adds a digital and very powerful reason why it is unconstitutional.
0: It's, it's what it's icing on the cake as far as you're concerned, The your think position would be I, exactly I, the same without a political campaign.
1: I would say it's the crown jewel of a series of at least seven you fundamental precepts. need a reasons.
0: crown jewel? I mean, you 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 think the outcome should be exactly the same, whether or not there's a political campaign underway.
1: Yes, I believe there are at least seven independent First Amendment precepts that are violated by this gag order. Campaign speech is one of them. Heckler's veto is another one. So, for example, a year ago, we would still, if we had the same gag order, we would still be dealing with a categorically invalid Heckler's veto type theory. We would still be dealing with core political speech. Again, we would still be dealing with a situation where we have a restriction on uh, uh, criticism of public figures that violates the whole public figure doctrine there'd be a whole series of reasons it would still be unconstitutional however one of the most powerful and compelling of those i'm sorry for an un-
2: so mr Sauer, you you point to the fact that your client is in the midst of a campaign but i i trust you agree that that a, a prior restraint is is no matter to whom it would apply is subject to the highest level of constitutional scrutiny that's your argument absolutely yes. so and I also trust that you agree that your client is not above the law that applies to all other Americans.
1: He's subject to the First Amendment in principle, but yes.
2: He's subject to the to the law that applies to everyone. He's not above the law. Uh, we certainly haven't argued that, you Honor. right. And so the district court found that when the defendant has publicly attacked individuals, including on matters related to this case, those individuals are consequently threatened and
1: harassed. And we view that factual finding for clear error, right? No. In a First Amendment case, I believe, as we cited in our standard review section under Houston against Hill, the court should engage in a plenary review of the record under de novo review. That is a mixed question effect and law. But for
2: the it's findings what- about what happened in the world, we look at that for clear error.
1: And then we look at the First Amendment implications de novo. Looking at that particular finding, the court would have to look at it in light of the evidence in the record, which shows that that's all based on evidence that's three years old and is weighed against the fact that they have no evidence of any threats or harassment that have happened in this particular case. Uh, uh, even arguably caused by the speech that's challenged here, when the case has been pending for over three months, and the defendant has made public comments about the case almost incessantly. So, so the, the that's government's
2: the- position, and I, j- this is just for purposes of the question, just and I know you don't accept this, but the government's position is that we don't that the district judge is not limited to looking only at uh, the defendant's speech as it relates to this case, but but the government identified a dynamic not just exclusive to this case, whereby when the defendant has publicly attacked individuals, including but not limited (laughs) to the facts of this case, those people are are threatened and harassed. If If we were satisfied, and I know you're not satisfied, but if we were satisfied that evidence supported that finding, what more would be needed in your view? What more would be needed to support the district court's order or an order.
1: Yeah, I would quote from Landmark Communications and its quotation from Penn and Camp against Florida, which is that the standard that has to apply to a gag order applying, uh, or or even it's restriction on speech that relates to criminal proceedings, is that the substantive evil to must, that, that must be addressed must be extremely serious and the degree of eminence must be extremely high not remote or even probable, but imminently impending, and all that has to be proven by quote solidity of evidence. And when you have a situation, you 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 use the phrase including but not limited to. The fact that we have here is no evidence at all of threats or harassment in this particular case. All the evidence of threats and harassment go back three years ago to a totally different, you know, political dynamic, and this points out another problem with this, this sort of heckler's veto third-party uh, argument, which is that they can't draw a causal line from any social media post, any threat, or harassment, when we have wall-to-wall media coverage of this case every you know talking heads on social, uh, social media and on cable news and on network news are talking about it all the time now So just entirely focus, on,
2: focus on and again i know that that you dispute this and you think that the record is inadequate were the record indisputably adequate to support a finding of a dynamic that when people are named and as you point out this is a defendant who has millions of social media followers. So when people are named on that on that social media, people are threatened and harassed. And also assume for purposes of my question that the threats are not, don't rise to the level of a true threat that would be unprotected by the First Amendment. But we're talking about in in this case, I think something we're trying to protect against threats that, that wouldn't be excluded from, from First Amendment protection. In that situation, um, non-public figures who are witnesses non-public figures who are going to be witnesses what what about the interest of the court in a fair and impartial trial is insufficient to protect those witnesses from
1: that dynamic which results predictably in harassment let me say at least three things in response to that. First of all, a finding of a dynamic strikes me as a way to bake in speculation and hypothetical as a substitute for evidence. So if, they, if the district court said, I find a dynamic, I think that would be deeply problematic. It would have to be probed to see what the actual evidence was. Secondly, as to the question of sort of witnesses who are not public figures, there is no evidence of a single post about them in this particular case. So that piles hypothetical and speculation upon speculation. We've cited the Collins decision. For saying you can't restrict speech based on secondary effects, that's like tertiary or quaternary effects. I don't even have an adjective for how many steps removed it is. Because and again, that's actually right there on JA two thirty. Right there, the rationale of the the district court judge is well we don't have any threats or harassment in this case even though we've had wall-to-wall media coverage of it and wall-to-wall public statements going back for three months but there might some be threats or harassment to the only public figures that they've identified who are at the highest echelons of government i, I was president. actually focusing
2: for for a reason on non-public yeah, it, it, and just to make your position it's just to challenge you a little more the the order is intentionally prophylactic it's intentionally Protective of, against harms that have yet to occur, and in the in the distinctive context of protecting the integrity of a trial process, that can be a sufficient interest.
1: for a suppression of speech. Just prophylactic in the situation where the solidity of the evidence shows an imminently impending danger. We are nowhere near that in this particular case. And as I was saying about non-public figures, there's no evidence of any statement in this case that relates to any non-public figure. So again, you're piling, that would be, and in fact, the district court did that in this case.
3: Council, I think the concern is that it seems at times your position would be that the district court's hands are tied until we actually know there has already been harm to the integrity of the trial for example that a witness has been intimidated and so i think the questions we are trying to get at what evidence short of that you certainly can't be saying that's what we need what evidence short of that would the district court need before it could step in and enter an order like this
1: solidity of evidence that demonstrated an imminently impending threat and again that's right. Supreme Court case law. So I think going we're back going back to, to
3: the to the legal standard. You mentioned the Fifth Circuit's decision in Brown, right. and that court rejected the argument you're making today, which is essentially that the district court has no authority to regulate the speech of a criminal defendant unless it's entirely unprotected by the First Amendment. And what the Fifth Circuit said, drawing on Gentile and even the landmark communications case, is that the Supreme Court has drawn a distinction between speech restrictions on those who are participants in the trial and those who are strangers to it. I believe that's essentially a direct quote from Gentile. So what's your what's your best argument that criminal defendants shouldn't be treated as within that category of participants in the trial?
1: If you look at Justice Rehnquist's opinion in Gentile, it's 12 pages in section Which was not a
3: controlling it. opinion. The controlling opinion is Justice Rehnquist on the legal standard.
1: Exactly right. I'm talking about section two of that opinion is the controlling opinion of the court. It goes on for 12 pages about the specific, I mean again and again and again, it's all about the special roles of attorneys and it says attorneys, are officers of the court, attorneys can be subjected to particular restrictions that it directly contrasts with, for example, the rights of ordinary citizens or the common it also rights talks of the about, I'm
0: sorry, but It also talks about participants. And there are a number of Supreme Court cases that taught, that distinguish participants in a criminal trial from those who are outsiders to the criminal trial. Would you at least agree that there is that language in Supreme Court cases? Uh, there is some language, but I there do is not think there's... that
1: language in Supreme Court cases, correct? Not language that would tie participants to the substantial likelihood of material prejudice
3: standard. We do I just want to that. be a little more precise about this. So the quote from Gentile is there's a distinction between restrictions on the speech of those participating in the litigation and strangers to it and it goes on to say of shepherd the sort of canonical case about a trial court's obligations quote we expressly contemplated that the speech of those participating before the courts could be limited you mentioned landmark it's that concerned a sanction on the press and footnote 9 of that opinion says if this was limited to those who participated in the proceedings it might well save the statute And our job here is to read these Supreme Court cases and uh, it seems like they're drawing a very clear line of participants and non.
1: I, I don't hear anything or see anything in any of that language that says, therefore you're subject to the substantial likelihood of material prejudice test. And we do dispute that, but even if that test applies, You would have to have much, much more evidence. Keep in mind that, you know, Justice Kennedy's plurality opinion in Gentile emphasizes that the whole point of the substantial likelihood of material prejudice test was to approximate, to approximate the clear and present danger test that we say applies. And he says the difference between those is likely mere semantics. Whatever that standard means, it is an exacting standard that is not even
0: plausibly satisfied. But if there is a different standard for participants, as opposed to outsiders, Uh, if there is. This is my question to you. If there is a different standard for participants than there is for outsiders, so please take that premise, there has to be something different from clear and present danger because then there would be no different standard for participants. So if we read these cases to mean what they say, there is a different standard for participants than outsiders to the proceedings, Do you have an argument as to what that standard should be other than clear and present danger? I'm simply this is sort of like your plan B (laughs) if you have it. If if there's a different standard what should it be?
1: No one that I'm aware of has cited any case law that specifically addresses that question. That's why I'm asking you. yeah, Yeah which is to my mind that's a powerful reason to adopt the clear and present danger stat in other words we say clear and present danger they say substantial likelihood of material prejudice no case at all adopts some intermediate standard between those
0: two well you just and told me substantial likelihood is very close and that's why
1: there's nothing between them right okay we say so then substantial
0: same, likelihood uh, may be close enough to clear uh, and present it, danger if it's
1: interpreted as we think it should be interpreted in light of you have told us how it
0: should be interpreted different from clear and present if I, i'm telling I'm, I'm going to say this again the answer is not Clear and present with different labels. If, if there's something less than clear and present, otherwise there's no differentiation between participants and outsiders. So if there is something less than clear and present danger, how would you articulate it? I am ready to write. The two standards
1: approximate each other, and I'm not aware of any case adopting anything in between the You don't those have two. a
0: standard. It, to correct, offer the court. correct. Our position okay. is the clear and present danger standard. Full loss. stop, and you have, is it, if, if, if that is not what we adopt, then you have no other argument for us.
1: I'm, I'm, I don't have, I, I would have to invent a standard.
0: No, but I'm right asking, don't. well, sometimes that's what the law requires. Yeah, so if we need to come up with something that still treats participants different from outsiders, and if outsiders get clear and present, that necessarily means participants get something less. That's what this case is about. And you say, you know, the district court here pro- applied the substantial likelihood test. So. you've got got nothing in between to offer us i would say clear and present danger is the standard that applies
1: if the court applies substantial likelihood of material prejudice it ought to take count of the effect that that approximates the clear and present danger test and the showing that was made in the district court here comes nowhere near satisfying
0: either of those tests okay and what would what well we'll give you whatever time we'll we'll let you know (laughs) when there's um in your definition or application of clear and present danger and that's an incredibly strict test Is there any limitation on a participant's speech? What does it capture that is not already outlawed by 1512 or something else? What speech would be captured that isn't already illegal in your mind? Can you give an example of some speech that would be covered by your clear and present danger test that isn't in fact unlawful form of threats, harassments?
1: Well, I mean, the notion of harassment, as we said in the Popa decision, raises the problem that some of the quote harassment may actually be First Amendment protected speech. So I don't think that would be it. Uh, uh, are there cases that would address speech that is not criminal, right? In other words, you say 1512. speech. Can though? you
0: give me an example of some speech that is covered by your test that isn't already covered by the criminal law?
1: I can't think of a hypothetical as I stand here. So
0: really, your point then is that there can be no limitation on speech because his his release conditions already forbid him to violate the law. The conditions of release- Forbid him to violate the law. That is correct. You can't give me an example of speech that could be regulated. That doesn't violate the law.
1: I'm thinking. I'm thinking of all the social media posts, for example, yeah. that are. Uh, you,
0: you can know, make one up. It doesn't. I'm really make. I'm asking you to make something up here, not really refer to something that happened. I'm not I, asking you to say that. I, I, I have trouble. I cannot think of a
1: hypothetical that would not be a violation of the law. Right. So because we're dealing with the heckler's veto scenario. So if no,
0: I, no, because then that. Means, I'm just trying to make sure I understand. And I'm. It, it may be right. <laughs> we're dealing with yeah. political speech here. But your position is that at least when the participant, a participant in trial is engaged in political speech, there can be no limitation imposed to protect the administration of justice in the criminal proceeding, no, that's other not- than the pre-existing prohibition against violating the law. No, that is. Okay,
1: you just got to give me an example. I've been asked for a hypothetical uh, with no evidence at all to show how there might be some daylight between those two standards. And I frankly am thinking of all the social media posts at issue in this case and whatever else, whatever daylight there may be between those, these don't satisfy.
0: Well, this is a test that you've proposed. And so I'm trying to see if you have a conception of how it works that would allow a court to still protect the criminal proceeding beyond its prohibition on violating the law and that's this is your test and so it seems incumbent upon you to be able to explain to me what a court could do to protect the integrity of criminal proceedings that isn't already co- covered by a don't violate the law don't violate the criminal law under under nebraska press association the heavy burden of demonstrating quote that's not the yeah. this is oral argument yeah. and you're here challenging an order and asking us to adopt a legal test i mean what's been crystal clear from the supreme court is they've even said many times recently clear and present danger isn't a mechanical formulation it's meant to be a balancing test a test that balances the interests in speech which you have explained are very high and the interests in protection the integrity protecting the integrity of the criminal process and the criminal proceeding which is also a weighty constitutional interest. And so the reason I'm asking this question is to see if there's any balance, which is what the Supreme Court tells us to do in the test that you propose. And so tell me how it ba- how it balances if you can't give me anything other than a criminal law violation that would satisfy your test. The phrase I believe that
1: the Fifth Circuit used in Brown, a case heavily relied on the government, is absolute freedom. In the context of a okay, So there is campaign. no balance. Criminal speech, obviously, is subject to the, the restrictions. And then that's, but core okay, political so, speech that is core political speech that's part of campaign speech that I raises don't the question. I think that
0: kind of calling, labeling it core political speech begs the question of whether it is, in fact, political speech or whether it is political speech aimed at derailing or corrupting the criminal justice process. You can't simply label it that and conclude your balancing test that way. We have to balance. Well, I think in the balance, the court should consider the fact that the issues at stake in the appeal
1: are just absolutely inextricably and in the gag order itself, not just the appeal, inextricably entwined with the issues that are being publicly debated in the context of the- Council, you mentioned
3: Brown a few times and the fact that that order was lifted in the run up to the election. Mm -hmm. What actually happened in that case is that the district court at the outset, without any evidence, the only evidence was that there was general press attention to the case and it sua sponte entered a very broad gag order. It then lifted that in the run-up to the election, but the defendants then started sharing recordings relevant to the case with the press, and the court stepped in and reimposed a limited form of the gag order. So my question is, why isn't the analogy here to that second narrower gag order that the court entered in Brown? That's what happened here. The district court didn't act rashly; it waited, Back in August, it gave clear warnings to the parties not to make the type of statements that were at issue. That trend continued, and now we have an order that's targeted at the exact types of statements that have been occurring. So that's my question. In Brown, they did reimpose an order during the election.
1: Yeah, looking at the facts of Brown, I believe it was other defendants, not the political candidate, who started leaking, you know, it was confidential transcripts of jury materials and giving interviews about them. The court reissued a gag order that basically said, don't release stuff you're getting through discovery that is otherwise confidential, which is totally different than the gag order we have here, right? This is not a situation, we haven't disputed in this case that a district court could say, hey, you've gotten access to materials only through discovery, this is like the Seattle Times situation, and therefore you can't release those to the public, so then Brown goes on to say that he was given complete latitude to actually defend himself in the political arena, which right. is the critical issue, or which is one of the many critical issues at stake in this appeal. And he was given, and it says it may well be the case that for the benefit of the electorate as well as himself, he has absolute freedom to discuss it. And keep in mind the electorate there was people voting for a Louisiana insurance commissioner. Here we're talking about every voter in the United States of America. Now, I do want to get from- to
3: questions about the scope of what he's able to say, but just briefly back to the evidence. Uh, you're certainly correct that most of the threats at issue, this pattern of statements followed by threats is from 2020. But I think the link might be, and I wonder what your response is, that that was all about the same subject matter of this case. So essentially what the district court is finding is we have a past pattern. When the defendant speaks on this subject, threats follow. And now he's making similar statements again. We're months out from the trial. This is predictably going to intensify as well as the threats. And so why isn't the district court justified in taking a proactive measure, not waiting for more and more threats to actually occur and stepping in to protect the integrity of the trial?
1: There's an evidentiary burden here. The evidence, actually, it isn't just that there's no evidence now, it's that the evidence we have now completely counteracts that inference, because it is undisputed that President Trump has been posting about this case almost incessantly since the day it was filed, and they haven't come forward with a single threat that's even arguably inspired by any of his his social media posts. The only threat they talk about in their brief is from the Shry decision, from the the Shry case from the Southern District of Texas. I strongly invite the court-
3: Well, counsel, and a death threat to the district court the judge in this case. Right, Abigail Joe right. Shry.
1: that is the August
0: 5th telephone call. If you pull, it's Southern District of Texas- The day if, after he said, if you come after me, I'm coming after you, that threat issued
1: I I strongly encourage the court to pull both the probable cause statement and the detention order from that case where there's evidence that that particular threatener there's no evidence of any reading of social media that particular threatener is a unemployed you know mentally unstable heavy alcoholic who sits on her couch drinking beer all day according to her father never leaves the apartment watches the news not reads things on social media, watches the news on TV, gets angry about it and makes angry, threatening calls. So I'm sorry, can, counsel, this
3: might've been partly my fault, but I just, I want to go back. Imagine all we had was the 2020 pattern. That evidence is very specific. It's about when the president speaks on this issue events around January 6th and that there are very specific threats that people uh, uh, receive. And again, That was a time where, as you're saying, the atmosphere was very tense. As this trial approaches, the atmosphere is going to be increasingly tense. Why does the district court have to wait and see and wait for the threats to come rather than taking a a reasonable action in advance?
1: Again, the standard is imminently impending, solidity of evidence, we have an inference from stuff that happened three years ago, countervailed, you know, contradicted by the evidence we actually have here, which is wall world- to wall, world- I mean, they are saying, oh, it's an imminent threat But someone could be harassed. Let me happen. ask you, uh, Mr. Sauer, the conditions of
2: release in this case uh, prohibit your client from communicating about the facts of the case with any individual known to the defendant to be a witness, except through counsel or in the presence of counsel. Your client signed uh, those conditions of release. Counsel, before the district court, uh, was quite clear that that was not being challenged. How under your analysis would those conditions of release not be invalid? Are you taking a position that that those conditions of release violate the First Amendment? No, we have never
1: challenged the conditions of release and and the president has complied with them. And how how
2: under your analysis would they not be unconstitutional. Well, a violation of
1: that condition of release may be the response to Judge Millett's question from earlier about about whether that that would be something, for example, that might not be criminal, but would be a clear and present danger to to the administration.
0: I don't, I don't want mites. I'm really trying to understand your legal test. If he were to communicate, pick up the phone and call someone that is known to him to be a witness, prospective witness in this case, and speak with that person without counsel present would could would that that would violate the, re- the restriction undoubtedly would the first amendment protect that communication under your test we have not contended that uh, it's not what i am asking i'm asking you to apply the test that you propose us because we have to write a test that can be applied and we have to know how it's going to be applied so i'm asking your position your legal position would that phone call be protected by the first amendment or not is it a phone call where it's, what's that, is Happy Thanksgiving, or is it a phone call where it's I'm said, not telling you why, you tell because it, the order, the pre-release, the release restriction doesn't care about the content. Yeah, I so do. he picks up the phone and calls a witness in direct violation of the terms of release... I, I, uh,
1: we, we do not contend that that would violate the First you, Amendment. Okay. It would so not that would not violate the
0: First Amendment? That is allowed that, under the First Amendment? Yes, that's completely consistent okay. with the positions we've taken in this case. And now if the next hypothetical is he, sa- he gets on the phone and he says, X, Ms. X, you've always been someone, courage, backbone, a loyalist, a patriot. And you know, loyalists and patriots don't talk to prosecutors in my case and hangs up okay if he said that
1: i think that would be a clear violation of the terms of release okay so what if he instead gets
0: on a stage somewhere or on social media and says that exact same thing ms x a public figure is being bothered by the prosecutor of people who are loyal, honest, patriots, don't talk to the government. He, he, he hasn't said that. And it is in this
1: characterization Please is answer, the, please answer the
0: question. I'm not suggesting he has said that. This is a, to be clear for the record, this is a hypothetical question. Does, can, does punishing that conduct, because he's not speaking directly to the witness. He's doing this on social media or at a town hall or a news interview. He says that. Does it violate the first amendment to say he, that's prohibited?
1: If he's communicating with the American electorate about matters, I've of told you the
0: facts. Okay. So your, your answer is no. I, I, I
1: have to know more about the context of this. So oh, I've
0: given you all the context you need to know if well, he does, if he has, if he does it over the phone, to the prospective witness you've said first amendment prohibits it if he says it with a megaphone knowing that witness is in the audience
1: then you're very likely in the same scenario okay but again and if he I, I, does again,
0: it on I, social media knowing that person's a social media follower of his Again, I think you're getting
1: further afield and more into core political. But doesn't
0: speech that state? have to be your answer? I mean,
2: Legion Which? Legion are the cases that you have to agree as you did with with Judge Mallet. Legion are the cases that say there's no right of a criminal defendant to try his case in the media. That's what the court is for. And of course, what's difficult about this case is because is that there is some substantive overlap between what the defendant wants to do in campaigning and what the prosecution here is doing in the in the case. Um, but the, to the extent that there's a, an ability to distinguish between trying this case in the media and running for president, clearly he has no entitlement I, to do publicly what is well-established, he could not do one-on-one to that, to that witness.
1: I would say two things in response to that. One is that there's not mere some overlap, there's near complete overlap between the issues in the case and the issues in the political campaign. Secondly, the whole, the whole st- the statements in the case that says you can't try your case in the media are all about cases that involve influence on the jury pool. And we don't have that rationale in this case because the district court expressly rejected that. You said that there's a complete overlap, but what about the, purport,
2: the portions of the order that cover, the let's say, the court's administrative staff? There would be no reason to campaign on any of that.
1: That was drawn. There was no evidence presented on that issue at all. He's never made a statement about court staff here. So that was drawn from concern. the New York situation that we briefed. That's there was core political speech. That illustrates the hazards here. There was no evidence on that particular case before the district judge. Apparently, it was relying on, you know, sua reviewing of media reports. When, in fact, the statements about the principal law clerk in the new, pending New York civil trial were absolutely core political speech. So they definitely violated the First Amendment Okay. I'm so, talking I, I, about I, I, in this
2: case, though, yeah, there's where no- there's an effort, <laughs> prophylactically, to protect court staff. And my, my premise is, or my question for you, is when you say there's complete overlap, it seems that that's an easy case where there actually isn't overlap, that individuals who are working for the judge assigned to this case would be no topic, no topic in a campaign other than an effort to undermine this case qua case.
1: I mean, I think the, I would say a couple of things to that I mean, we're talking hypothetically. The yeah, president has never made a statement relating to this case about any court staffer that I'm aware of. But the of order, secretary. as you well know, and as you've
2: challenged, the order applies to court staff.
1: With no evidence to support it. That I, can't I satisfy appreciate any...
2: that aspect of it, yeah. I appreciate that aspect of it, that you've made a point about whether there's evidence or not. But I'm talking about the over, the claimed overlap between political speech and the speech that's restricted by the order and i'm positing that there actually is speech restricted by the order that would not be campaign speech but for this case and you surely you can see that i think the new york
1: decision shows exactly no, 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 the opposite this, the we're not about talking the court about those circumstances
2: if there were a staffer of the judge about whom there it became clear that there was some political bias Nobody disputes that the defendant's team could and would file a motion with the judge to raise a concern about that and if and comment on how the judge ruled on that. But that's not where we are. We're in a situation of prophylaxis and that's really what I'm asking you about. Yeah, I mean- a prophylactic situations where nobody who works for the court, these are career people, nobody volunteered for this assignment. None of them have life tenure. They're just trying to do their jobs. Nothing about them would be campaign speech in the absence of a case.
1: But what we see in New York is that if you enter that prophylaxis now based on- We're not in New York. If you enter that prophylaxis now, with based on no zero evidence, no evidence at all, no evidence of the political bias might be as of the court staffers and no evidence of any statement about any court staffers. And if it later turns out that there's an extremely biased court staffer, we have a huge first amendment problem. Let's, we have a prior restraint based on no evidence which is what this is. Let me ask you then in a different way. Let's say
2: that kind of situation arose here and the order is remains in place and is valid. So the defendant is in jeopardy of violating the order by tweeting about it, nothing would prevent the legal team in that situation from filing an emergency motion with the court, coming up to the emergency panel of this court and saying, there's bias here. And presumably once that's filed in the court, nothing would prevent the uh, defendant from Complaining about the way it's ruled
1: on. That flips the First Amendment on its head. The burden is I'm on just them to testify. Just there is a speech. protection there. There would be potentially the additional running on emergency motions. Keep in mind what it's black letter law. The Supreme Court said uh, uh, in Elrod against uh, Elrod against Burns, which is that. E, de, de, denial of First Amendment freedoms, even for minimal periods of time, is black letter irreparable injury. So even injecting that delay, that procedural delay, keep in mind we're talking about a prior restraint that is, that is, I think everyone can just based on no evidence at all. When in fact, if it were to become relevant, there could be compelling First Amendment interests in calling public attention to the alleged bias of the court staffer, which is what we see in New York, a, a gag order that is now
2: state. It, there's no precedent that I'm aware of that requires evidence of tampering with witnesses before a prophylactic order can be put in place to protect tampering with witnesses am i wrong about that i think the case
1: law says you have to have an imminently appending threat to the administration of justice about
2: witnesses
1: witness communicating with witnesses yeah but that's the general standard for all uh, all those now oh, you mean for the defendant to directly communicate with a witness that again i think we first saying that. publicly threatening things about witnesses uh, I think, what do you mean by threatening? Because the First Amendment has a clear test Some, of- Something that
2: falls short of true threat, because we wouldn't be here if that's the only thing that we're protecting against.
1: In the context of a political campaign, what, what, what is- what's So What's described as a threat here is core political speech. I can't emphasize that enough. So the hypothetical uh, is saying, well, what if he makes a threatening statement? What they've described as threats is actually, under the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, core political speech. It is- rough and tumble, uh, uh, but it, and it is hard hitting in many situations, but it absolutely is core political speech and all the examples they provided, it's directed at public figures from the highest echelons of government, former vice president, former attorney general, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who used to command the entire United States military. And the argument is that it's gonna influence their testimony. That's a, it's just not a, not a compelling. The influence. release
0: condition says defendants shall not communicate with witnesses. You keep talking about directly communicate. So is it your position that if he communicates through a social media post? Hey, witness X. I know the prosecutors bothering you trying to get you to say bad things about me. Be a patriot. Don't act treasonously. Don't cooperate. We have no such- I am not, it is really, it is really, I'm sorry, but I, I really want an answer to your understanding of the release conditions. This is, for the record, a hypothetical question. It, to my knowledge, hasn't happened. Apparently, to your knowledge, hasn't happened. Not even saying it would happen. I want to understand how you, because you have said, no First Amendment problem with the release condition. Okay, so I've asked you that question does that communication violate the release
1: condition? A social media post that is a direct
0: communication to a witness could well violate it. We would have to know more about the context. No, no, I've given yeah. you, I've given you exactly the content of the communication Whoop. that does, I don't know what more commun- you want. It's I've given you the text. Respect- and so that's what comes into the court. Is that a violation? That very well might be. So when you say indirect communication, because you keep saying direct, communications, as opposed to, I assume, indirect. Well, I mean, What that, indirect communications with witnesses are allowed? If there's view? a hypothetical, for example, that was raised earlier, where he's
1: at a town hall speaking to the entire American public, televised, mm-hmm. and says something that's core political speech, okay, to if he say, says oh, that that's exact a communication to the thing,
0: If he says the exact same thing, hey, I know, I know Witness X is out there, and that says exactly what I said.
1: What I would do is put that in the framework of the comments about Vice President Pence.
0: No, 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 no. Don't put it in any other framework. Just tell me, does that violate the release conditions I,
1: I i want it before i answer that question i would mm-hmm. like to make the point that the context may result in a different answer to that question mm-hmm. as you've described it that could well be a violation the release conditions but the context is absolutely critical in many of these cases look at the post about vice president pence they say oh look he's commenting on vice president pence's testimony what actually happened there is on august 1st the indictment is released with a statement about
0: two honest that's not my hypothetical my hypothetical was quite clearly about cooperating with the prosecutor or not? I think the real world course of communication
1: relating to Vice President Pence illustrates my response that we must know the context. What more context
0: do you want from my hypothetical? Well, for example, look at Vice President Pence. No, 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 tell me what fact you need to know from my hypothetical. What if that is- a witness X. I know you're listening. And then talks about prosecutors been bothering you, anyone who's faithful, loyal. Won't work with this prosecutor who's out to get me. Doing so, lying—that would be like almost like treason.
1: What if witness X is just? I am. At, the, so
0: wait. So what is your? What more facts do you need? Well,
1: what if Whitney, what if that is a fair response to something that witness X has said in the. I'm asking arena? you whether
0: it's. I'm not asking whether fair or not. That's. I don't see anything in the release condition that says only unfair communications are prohibited. Is that a communication? to a witness. And I think I've already stated that it could well be. Could well be, it be. is a Well, be. Be. I but well I, I, again, it, it There's another be. fact you need to know to tell me that it is a communication with witness. What would that fact be? Well,
1: if, for example, if it is a statement being made in the political arena that is not directed political to arena. You,
0: directed the public it, as a whole. It's a political, re- I've just said, it's a political arena. It's a, it's, a, it's a, either a social media post or he's standing in the town hall. So it's in a political arena. And I, I think my answer is I,
1: I just, don't know how to answer it differently that could well violate it. It seems like the way you've described it, that that would be a violation, violation of this, but with the caveat, so that there some could of be the, additional facts that would, uh, lead to a different
0: conclusion. So, and, and this so, is the, so, so just cause I'm, I, you know, I've been struggling to try to understand what, what your tests captures, right? And, and so it's in addition to criminal law violations, it captures his messaging to at least known prospective witnesses about cooperation it could well do so again it would depend on so the first amendment would allow you'd have arguments on both sides but the first amendment if the if the district court concluded factually that that were a communication with a witness without counsel present then that First Amendment would allow punishment of that.
1: If there was uh, 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 evidence supporting that finding, and the finding was made that that there was a violation, the of the evidence conditions is going to be beliefs.
0: the tweet we, or the recording of the town hall meeting. Whatever. We've never disputed that. we okay. We never disputed that.
1: That if there is a now, what, what I resist doing is trying to try this case based on hypotheticals. When the standard is, let's look at the evidence, because the evidence we have. No one's trying a
0: case based on hypotheticals. We are testing the legal rule that you wish us to adopt. Because again, as the Supreme Court has, I know you you have embraced the Nebraska test and made very good arguments about that and about the importance of political speech here. You've made very, very important points about that. But the Supreme Court has said, that's not a technical metric to be applied, clear and present danger. It bespeaks a balancing test. And so what I've been struggling with this argument is to understand what in your test balances the legitimate, constitutionally uh, important values of protecting the criminal trial process. And so it sounds like, at least if he's talking about prospective witnesses, there may be some room there between what would be illegal um, and what could constitutionally be proscribed through an order of the court.
1: I think I agree Correct. with that
0: okay. uh, as you framed
1: it and I would say two further things. One is I direct the court's attention to the Heckler's veto case this. Mm-hmm. Heckler's veto rationales have uniformly been treated as basically categorically invalid. So whatever r- room there is there when dealing with the Heckler's veto rationale is vanishingly small.
0: I know, but there's you know there's also another rule in the law that people are uh, can be assumed to attend the known intend the known and consequences of their actions that's a pretty settled rule of law as well Um, and and a district court trying to protect the integrity and fair administration of the criminal process could they consider that well-established rule not
1: under heckler's veto theory i'm not
0: they're not putting it under a theory what i'm saying is could they if Hypothetically, this hasn't happened. This is a hypothetical. A statement were made by a criminal, another criminal defendant who's running for some low-level office and made a statement that caused, ended up causing harm to that, inspired some third person to engage in harm and it were shown, be a hard showing to make, that the speaker was aware that there were known improbable consequences of this violent action ensuing from, his, you're already shaking your head now. My answer is going to be no. I think that but was that rule really just decades the
1: Supreme Court's Kate Law Heckler's veto. Because the notion that, oh, here. you knew this was going to happen. could be made in every single Heckler's veto, case. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you knew we're when you gave a speech against, about, ba- you knew when you marched through Illinois dressed in your crazy outfits. They're balancing,
0: those cases didn't involve balancing against another constitutional interest in preserving the integrity of the criminal justice process and so that's where my question is coming from yeah in those cases but they didn't involve the balance that you've agreed do you you agree we have to balance right the supreme court has said this is a even your clear and present danger test is a balancing test you agree with that I don't view it I don't view strict scrutiny as a balancing test we've argued that it's okay, either the supreme court has said or, the supreme court has said in straight up terms that clear and present danger is in fact not a technical rubric but in fact is simply a balancing test. That's what the Supreme Court has said. So we're bound by it, whether you agree or not. But I assume you agree there's a balance here that doesn't exist in the normal First Amendment context.
1: I, do, I don't I do dispute that there is a balancing to be okay. done, but the, the, to me, the term balance suggests a kind of looseness in the legal standards that apply, and we disagree with that categorically. There's the strictest of standards. Strict may, scrutiny is a balancing test. I don't <laughs> so describe it as such, and maybe that's why there's miscommunication. Right. Right. we are balancing, yeah, competing,
0: in, the Supreme Court has told us whether you agree or not, but so I'm hoping you will agree because the Supreme Court precedent is quite clear that whether your formulate is clear and present danger or otherwise, the First Amendment area, we're in a balancing test here. And so we are balancing, and particularly in these cases, involving criminal process and free speech. They've said time and again, it's a balancing test. and I Now, that doesn't mean it's 50-50, right? Your position, of course, is that this isn't a 50-50 balancing. There's already a lot of weight on the First Amendment side. Right. So understood. I don't dispute the court's use of the phrase balancing
1: balancing at all, but with the caveat that we have argued that under the Heckler's veto standard, it is per se invalid. All the cases they've relied on do not are not Heckler's veto cases, Mm -hmm. and that is really what the Supreme Court says. Because if you engage in any scrutiny at all in a Heckler's veto context, you end up being able to shut down every speaker who ever speaks, and that's. We had a different.
0: uh, if, If we had. Different, first of all, we're not shutting down everyone who speaks. We're only, this is only affecting. no one's shutting down and everyone's, this is only affecting speech temporarily during a criminal trial process by someone who has been indicted as a felon. So that's a different category first. So no one here is threatening the first amendment broadly. But secondly, if we had hypothetically, a completely different criminal defendant who is running for say, what's it? A statewide office, pretty important statewide office and this person, hypothetical facts, not before us, engages in political speech, decrying the process, the criminal process, insulting, berating, and um, uh, calling terrible names of the, of the, of the prosecutor and the prosecutor's family and, and starts posting the address where they live, and every time this um, campaigner does that, someone in his audience goes and tries to execute violence against the prosecutor or family members. That is not this case. But if that happened, if there were a repeated pattern of it happening, how would that fit into your balance?
1: I think the first half of your hypothetical is exactly like the case against Congressman Ford, where he was allowed to say the prosecution against me is racist, I'm being persecuted by the Reagan administration. The first half, but of course, the second
0: half was really important, and that is that there's a repeated, excuse me, there's a repeated pattern. And so I, I I don't, I'm not asking for a case citation here. You've done an excellent job in your briefing to give us really important relevant cases. What I'm asking for is, in that hypothetical, if there's a repeated pattern, in the balancing test one could the district court factor that repeated pattern of conduct by third parties responding to speech
1: not if that pattern was three years old and the evidence that's not my questions
0: no Nope. no no, no. <laughs> i mean again i, I if it's right with, if it's immediate yeah in other words if you so have a criminal pattern.
1: defendant who's posting street address home addresses of you know, whoever it is, witnesses and trial, participants, and there's a repeated pattern or their family of members. acts of violence against them. Uh, you know, I'd have to know more. I'm qualifying uh, what I say with saying, mm-hmm. I'd have to know more about the facts of that case, but I could certainly see a situation where that would be justified. I'm not okay. saying that it can never, ever be justified okay. with the exception that, that the would heckler's be, veto yeah. rationale. Well, that is, is a
0: heckler's veto. It's how third parties respond to the speech. In my, it is definitely, I think what you are calling a heckler's veto, but it is also, I'm combining that with um, either intent or at least knowledge or recklessness on the part of the political speaker as to the entirely foreseeable and repeated pattern of consequences from that speech. Yeah,
1: I think my response to that is that the so- so-called you know state of mind of the speaker is irrelevant in the Heckler's veto mm-hmm. context, right. and we have no evidence of an improper state of mind here. We have an argument that's from a district question. judge, mm-hmm. and I, I do keep oh, returning God. to the facts of this case because the facts here don't come anywhere close to justifying this gag order.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't know if I know I've gone way over my time. No, that's
0: okay. I think you as long do. as we have questions, you. <laughs> if you don't mind, if you no, okay. Ahead.
3: I want to make sure we hear from you on the vagueness argument. So it's a little bit separate from what we've been talking about so far, but I think the question to you, just to step back, you know, the district court is concerned about witness intimidation. It also worked hard to give some leeway to the first amendment values. And so the order it entered is narrower than what the government wanted. There's a significant carve out and it certainly gives rise to close edge cases. But I think the question to you is with the two orders, with all the examples in the transcript, what is something that you're genuinely unsure whether Mr. Trump can say under this order. What's your sort of best concrete example of that? Half
1: half of the social media posts in the record. I mean, you go through them, you're like, is this general or is it targeting? I mean, from the perspective of a lawyer who has to counsel clients, you're in a, you're you're steering, because it's so vague, you're steering straight towards the shoals of chilling more speech than is intended. So I appreciate that general point.
3: The, The district court took a lot of care in an extensive hearing to go through a lot of examples and references those in the order denying the stay. So what I would love to hear is if there's one, you know, particular example of those Posts yeah, I, that you don't think has been resolved. Yeah, Here's I think
1: there's, uh, there's, there's, for example, there's one social media post in the record that doesn't mention the special counsel by name, but refers to the Department of Injustice being run by crooked Joe Biden, who are, you know, railroading, me. I don't remember the exact words of it, but railroading me for political reasons. Is that targeting the special counsel or is that a general It seems to statement- me
3: that's exactly what the district court was saying was allowed uh, I, statements about the department of justice and president biden that's sort of the literal words of the carve out so i, I would think yeah, and I mean, maybe that's a question for the government but I i'm think, pretty sure that's common ground that that's allowed
1: i think that the uh, i mean I, I would refer the court to the actual social media post when i read that i'm like what would i tell a client can you do this or can't you do this that's the chilling effect and i would emphasize to the court the The standard in Gentile, Gentile, the governing opinion on the vagueness issue is section three of Justice Kennedy's opinion. That's the opinion of the court. What does it hold? It holds that the State Bar of Nevada had a rule that says you can make a general denial of your client's guilt, but you cannot elaborate. And Justice Kennedy says this is unconstitutionally vague. You know, its contours are unclear and a lawyer cannot know when you go from the safe harbor of the general to the forbidden sea of the elaborated. And here we have so I appreciate it's that.
3: exactly on point. I appreciate that argument. I think one big distinction is that in Gentile, it was a generally applicable uh, rule. Here we have an order that's informed by the transcript and all of the examples that were given. And it does seem like the core of what's allowed and what's not is fairly clear. So just for example, I think this is page 201 of the appendix, your co-counsel, says that mr trump should be able to say a joint chief of staff should not engage in that kind of conduct referring to 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 Millie. and the court says yes he's allowed to make that type of statement what he can't do is go on and say that type of conduct should be punishable by death and so it's not I, sort I, of a completely abstract distinction is it it's I, I, I whether there's a said, suggestion I mean, of a threat
1: i mean i think what you said powerfully illustrates the vagueness. Because if there's if, if their position is, there's two statements about General Milley, one is okay and the other is not okay. I, I, I don't know how, as an attorney who is to counsel a client to comply with the law, how you would say, oh, that first one is not targeting him. It's critical of him. It, the, the dictionary definition of target that we cited, that would be targeting. And the argument is, well, we're not gonna count that one because the First Amendment interests are obviously clear. You see what so my
3: concern is though, it's not about the abstract meaning. We're not asking whether an ordinary person in the public can understand what targeting means. We're asking whether the parties who are all represented at this hearing can understand. And so we have that statement, right? And then the government makes similar examples on page 40 of their brief, that allowed, not allowed. And I'm just trying to ask, which ones?
1: I think I would, I understand cite, you're doing I would cite to the court to address this, the graded standard. The great standard is you can have a situation where there'd be ad hoc or subjective application of the standard. So we have an order that says, don't target, right? Don't target prosecutors, witnesses, court staff. And then the prosecution comes in and says, actually, it'd be okay to make a public statement criticizing someone who's a potential witness they contend. And that wouldn't be targeting. At that point from the defense perspective, it's like, what does target mean? You have an Howard, answer
2: to that. Go ahead. I appreciate that, yeah. that concern about targeting. So is it clearer or less clear if the order were to say that what's prohibited is comment on any reasonably foreseeable witness because of the witness's potential participation in the trial? And the, let me just give you a little bit of context of, of my thinking on that, which is there are a lot of people who are out in the public and with whom the defendant has a history and he has reason apart from the trial that he might want to comment on them there is also a whole category of witnesses who with whom there's no you know who are not public figures and where the The reason that he might be tempted to comment on them in the campaign is because they're potential witnesses. And that's really at the core of the interest in an impartial trial. So does that add clarity to say that you can only make comments on potential witnesses, but not because of their
1: potential role as witnesses. I think sort of a standard I think because of would sort of wrap into that standard subjective motivation of the speaker and I think that would be, you know, an equally bad it's a different vagueness problem, but it's equally bad. Using the word comment instead of target, that might be clearer. I'd have to look that up in the dictionary to have a clear answer, which is what we did here well, for the, target. The, what's, but it's re- it doing trade. the work
2: of targeting is the because of, which I think is narrower than targeting, because it's it's both targeting and then linking it to the interest, which is the trial and protecting the trial. And and it also I think organically distinguishes between the public figures where who would there would be more reasons that they would be fair game and the and the non-public figures who
1: also at the same time might be more vulnerable. There, if, there were order, if there were an order that used because of mm-hmm. then I think that would be naturally interpreted to, to turn the violation on the subjective motivation and making the post, I think that would be uh, I'm not so all sure. all kinds of grain head problems. So, I'm not
2: so sure, although I think if I were in your position, I would I would embrace an intense standard, but I don't see this as an intense standard. I see this as a, you know, as more of a an nexus, um, and it would have to be assessed. Again, again,
1: I think that would trade one vagueness problem for another. And be worse or, or less unclear? I don't know. I think they both seem both seem fatal, so I think it's equally bad. Equally bad. Okay.
0: If, um the day after the indictment, the uh, defendant sent out on social media, quote, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Can you say that's protected protective speech? Absolutely. If he had said that right outside the courthouse to a phalanx of cameras, so he's speaking to the public, same answer? I think so. If he posts it with a picture of the district court judge in the corner. Again, we getting into...
1: You know, I'd have to know the context
0: of that. I've given you the context. It's the same identical social media post, but adds a picture of the district court judge in the corner.
1: I'd have to look at case law. That would be more problematic for sure. Why? Well, I think because then in the context of the state, at least the context that you've added in a hypothetical, that again is not present in the, the courthouse here, there would be a situation where an argument would be made that that's some kind of threat to the district judge, which if it were it rose to the level of true threats, and I haven't read the case law, I cannot make a legal determination as I stand at the podium, but if it rose to that level, that would definitely not be protected by the First Amendment. Yet a similar threat in one of the so cases based like on so the, the Manafort same, decision, the same words, There's, there are
0: words that can be said that... Adding a picture will take them outside the First yeah, Amendment. And again, in I your don't see that,
1: that would, but I'm saying it's getting closer. For example, in the Manafort decision, mm-hmm. there was a posting of a picture of the district judge with crosshairs, I think, Indeed. next to the district judge's head. There you're outside right. the First Amendment almost certainly. We I don't have to wait that almost to certainly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, say I, certainly I, I, I haven't read the, the the true threats case law, but I bet that statements like that would qualify as true threats.
2: So, so this really gets back to the to the one thing that I'm finding really elusive in your presentation. I understand that you think the state the ordinary First Amendment prior restraint strict scrutiny standard applies, but even taking that as the correct position, in in contradistinction to Gentile, which you know, you you would reject. I don't hear you giving any, any weight at all to the interest in a fair trial. And am I right that, that you don't? That simply because the defendant is a presidential candidate and he wants to speak on anything he wants to speak and he basically indiscriminately wants to post on social media, that there can be no restraint of his speech, because any restraint, no matter how tight a nexus to protecting a fair trial, is overcome by his
1: campaign interests. I emphasize two things in response to that question. One is that the speech at issue and the criminal trial are deeply intertwined, and the other is the statement in the Brown decision that talks about absolute freedom, at least while the campaign is pending. So your answer is
2: is there is no work that the interest in a fair trial can permissibly do at the very in this, least, yeah, in this situation that could meet the speech standard that you would
1: apply? I wouldn't put it that way. I would say the showing would have to be extraordinarily compelling at the very least. And again, I would quote the language so the, of Landmark and Penningham. And, and that as I about, hear
2: your answer, sorry to interrupt, to but we've been going for quite a while. As I hear your answer, the compelling showing would have to show the harm had already occurred. And that it was likely to repeat you're not able to accept the notion that there could be I, a I, prophylactic I, a, a showing based on some amount of prediction
1: I, I disagree with that because i think the standard that we cited in landmark says imminently impending based on solidity of evidence so that does say there could be a a, a restriction that's entered before there was it but there would have to be this compelling evidentiary
0: I think the supreme court in nebraska applied an imminently impending test when it analyzed the district court's concerns about that was pretrial publicity.
1: Uh, I sure I, don't
0: read it as doing that.
1: I believe Nebraska evidence, one thing that it emphasized, for example, is the need for evidence in the record to support the restrictions, which was absent in that case. No, no, and no, no, no.
0: I don't see He's assessing the, quote, probable publicity, um, right? And he was justified including that there would be publicity based in part on common human experience, that publicity might impair the defendant's right to a fair trial. I'm reading from 562 and 563 of the opinion here. Um, a clear and present danger that pretrial publicity could impinge on the right to a fair trial. Of course, his conclusion as the impact of such a publicity on prospective jurors was of necessity speculative dealing as he was with factors unknown and unknowable. That does not sound at all to me like the I mean, you've wrapped yourself around Nebraska versus Stewart. So I just want to make sure that that language from the Supreme Court, which of course is controlling on us, what you're talking about as the predicate for the district court's showing of a need to impose some sort of restriction.
1: Yeah, I believe that decision goes on to say- Oh, no, it, is it validates is the
0: terms of that specific restriction, but this is prong one. Do we need to do something? the court breaks it up and it's for little things, right? Then, then goes on to say there were other aspects of that very, very broad order that were a problem. Uh, but the need to do something and the district court's entitlement to do something that is going to affect speech can be based on the Nebraska showing. That's your position, because you've embraced that case, correct?
1: I don't believe that that opinion means that you can just speculate that you need a showing on on part one. I've told you you what it says. I'm not
0: asking, you can read the whole paragraph. I'm sure you've read it many times because you rely on this case extensively. Do you agree, or are you asking us to disagree with what the Supreme Court said was a sufficient predicate for some action? not the order in that case, but for some prophylactic action by the district court to protect the criminal process. I believe the court
1: should follow Nebraska. Nebraska. I agree that court should follow b- 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 I disagree with the way that, okay. interpret, that bear- has been interpreted. Mr. Uh,
2: Mr. Sauer, can I ask you if the, if the district court entered an order restricting a criminal defendant from making comments about individual jurors and the defendant were a candidate for public office would would that order violate the First Amendment?
1: It would depend on the context, but I do concede there be facts that could justify an order like that.
2: It would depend on the context. I think so. There, yes. there's a situation in which, it, let's say, the district judge, prophylactically, has a has a very powerful and vocal defendant in in the case, and uh, jurors are you know it's their public, civic duty to uh, to participate and as a as a more open measure than having a sequestered jury that the district judge wants to protect the, the jurors and says no no public comments about any of the individual juries you think it would depend on the context whether that order was consistent with the first amendment
1: i say two things we don't dispute that there could be an impaneling of an anonymous jury here which is, i think is the hypothetical well no and, i would saying and, and in fact we offer anonymous that as an anonymous jury and the
2: protection of
1: I think, yeah, I think it's saying, hey, the jurors are anonymous, don't post anything. No, 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 I'm saying a non-anonymous, I'm
2: sorry, a non-anonymous jury. And the question is whether the district judge consistent with the First Amendment can say off
1: limits to comment specifically about the jurors. That's almost identical to the facts of Capital City's media where Justice Brennan, I think, stayed. a a a a a a rule that said you can't talk about the jurors because what was being said about the jurors was already in the public domain he said i can't imagine a justification that would justify that so uh, that's why i say it may depend on the context really so is the information in the public domain
0: already the internet nowadays the address of every juror might well be in public domain so district court issues the order i I should The district court issues the order that judge pillard referenced um and uh, a criminal defendant then tweets out to the world, here's the name and address of, this, of the jurors deciding my case.
1: If it got in the public domain some other way.
0: It's already in the public it, domain, yes.
1: It's in the, if it's in the public, it, what happened in Capital City's media is this was put in the public domain by the court. There was an open hearing. No, 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 that's not my hypothetical. My hypothetical
0: is it, this is, the world has changed since that time period now. And the amount of information about any individual, including their address, is pretty easily def- easy to find. Uh, so the district, if the if the defendant said, "Well, I can't tell the name of the jurors because I've been told not to," but here's the addresses of the unnamed jurors, which is very easy. That's already out there not public domain, right? You can just find that with Google.
1: You can't. I think. Let me put it this way. I don't dispute the First is- Amendment would allow a gag order from promoting individual address information of jurors, with the caveat that, again, capital cities media would probably govern in that situation. If it was a situation where that would have already been publicized by the court, it, it, Justice Brennan said there's no possible justification for that. I mean, but
2: what about yeah. now? I mean, in a situation where there there isn't any publication of these individuals' relationship to this case.
1: Right, I, I, that I think would be a huge problem. Right, that yeah. would not. In other words, as I understand the hypotheticals, that no one knows who the jurors are, or no one can link those names, John Smith and Susie Jones, to those addresses. But the defendant says, here's the addresses that go to the jurors. That's very different from Capital Cities Media. I don't dispute that. That, but that would even if, not if would they, if they, they be. were public. If they were public, because they weren't
2: sequestered, they're not yet public. Nobody's published that. Nobody's put it out. But they just are, as as Judge Millet was saying. That, you know, if you have a little bit of information about a person, you can find out a lot. But but can the judge say, fine, these people can live in public, but they can't be posted for millions of people by someone who is? It's not a heckler's veto, really. It's a it's a cheerleading uh, squad that that is going to come out and and uh, amplify or or act on and
1: perhaps overreact. I, I, I think the case would have to be assessed under capital states. I mean, we would that. not, I mean, I mean keep is, in mind I'm, that we contend that protecting the anonymity of jurors in this case is an alternative measure that should have been considered and wasn't. It's something that we've been essentially advocating for in our briefing in this case. So it's a situation where first amendment or not, I don't foresee any challenge to it, because we would view that as a less restrictive really alternative than dragging pro- the president's corporate- I'm not speech. trying to manage
2: this, this case, which the district judge, we all
1: know, is very able to do.
2: Um, I'm asking about the, again, you know, the hypothetical is to probe the nature of your position, and it is revealing of, you know, the, the fortitude that you uh, accord to the First Amendment and, and the really lack of any role for orders protecting the judicial process, and that's what I'm hearing, and so it, it was instructive to me to hear your answer to that.
0: In any event, for all the reasons we have stated in our briefs, we ask the court sorry. to reverse the Can again I order. ask you one more? Sure. Yes. Sir. I'm sorry. We'll let you rest. I apologize that it's been long, but it's it's been a helpful discussion. Thank you. Um, it's the night, and to be clear, you know far more than me about who the prospective witnesses in this case are, but um, it's, let's assume uh, former Vice President Mike Pence is going to testify, and it's the night before his testimony. Um, Could the defendant tweet out Mike Pence can still fix this? Mike Pence can still do the right thing if he says the right stuff tomorrow.
1: That was more problematic than the statements we have in the record. However, you should weigh the fact that is there any reasonable prospect of influencing former vice president Pence's testimony? Nobody contends that uh, any state. So of the I'm defendant sorry, I'm sorry, so, so, so,
0: so, 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 you're right. I was not specific enough first. Does that count as a communication to a witness?
1: Again, I would give the answers. I know we, we, we had a discussion of this before.
0: I'd give the answers. I've told you, it's okay, tweeted. Form.
1: Depending on context. It's tweeted out.
0: I've told you the that is the full text of the tweet, and it's tweeted out on his social media platform. And is it responding to something that Vice
1: President Prince said, or is it, it in is re, It Has is there the
0: night. This is the sum total of facts. You're not going to find anymore. You're not going to get any more context. This is it the night before he's scheduled to testify. Well, I'll give you one more fact. It's public record that he is testifying the next day. And that message goes out. Is thats that, is that first of all, is that communicating with the witness? Uh, if it's Violation just, of the release conditions.
1: If it's just broadcasting a statement of court political speech on social media, likely
0: not. Okay, is that something that the district court could prohibit consistent your first amendment test
1: only if it was based on a compelling evidentiary showing it of an actual threat to no, the administration no. of justice there's no more showing
0: she's the district only court. after it's happened <laughs> no no oh, you're right so if, if I, so, I so you're saying that if mike penson calls in sick the next day sorry laryngitis can't testify then we can say you can't post about mike pence that that can't be the test so it you're saying been- there's no prophylactic rule you're saying that doesn't violate communication with witnesses and you're saying there's no prophylactic rule. There's no circle around that communication with witnesses that the district court could draw, like prohibit that statement. I'm saying that that, the first amendment that
1: prophylactic would have to be based on a compelling evidentiary showing of likelihood to influence the the district court says,
0: the the district court says, I conclude that that communication was one attempted communication with a witness and in fact likely in a, a a completed communication with a witness and two was designed to and could affect a reasonable person's testimony before the court so now you've got those two fact findings
1: those fact findings would have to be based on evidence if those fact findings you're were made you're just not going to let have, the district
0: court you say a, you yes. can't in advance the night before trial encourage somebody's the content of their testimony. Your test, your test doesn't even allow for that.
1: If there's no reasonable prospect, that your it test doesn't would allow for that. If there is no reasonable prospect and no evidence that would actually influence anybody's but there's testimony, not be. and again, it is not my okay. test. There's not, it's, so, it's, so there's no
0: prophylaxis because when when you say I want evidence was actually going to influence, what you want is it has to be criminal, otherwise the district court can't protect it. Because if there's actual influence. That's a crime or actual evidence. That's a crime. So I'm just to be clear. We're back. I think where we started is that I think I I would stand on my prior responses. Okay. Any other questions? Thank you for your generous time. Thank you, Your Honor. We'll hear from the government. We will give you some rebuttal time.
4: Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court Cecil Van Devender on behalf of the United States. The District court correctly found the defense well-established practice Using his public platform to target perceived adversaries, including trial participants in this case, poses a significant and immediate risk to the fairness and integrity of these proceedings. The order that the district court crafted to address those risks should be affirmed for three principal reasons. First, the unique factual record before the district court. Second, the unusual narrowness of the resulting order. and Third, the recent evidence demonstrating that the defendant is fully capable of understanding and complying with the order while it's in effect. Just want to
0: follow up. You just said significant and immediate risk. So you're not embracing the Gentile test?
4: No, Your Honor. To be clear, the Gentile test is the constitutional test that applies. Significant and immediate uh, risk is the language that the district court found. So it sort of assumed that the, the those are
0: kind of different words. Pardon? Within the law, those are substantial likelihood of material prejudice and significant and immediate risk. I think are two different legal tests.
4: I completely agree, Your Honor, and the Gentile test of uh, uh, substantial likelihood of material prejudice is the correct legal test. But because the district court uh, incorporated the higher test of the defendant proffer, that is the uh, 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 significant and immediate risk test, I think that does um, inform the scope of the order and and informs the findings that the district court made. But to be clear, uh, the Gentile test is the one that applies.
2: Mr. Van Deventer, where are you Where is the finding that you're relying on?
4: It's on page two uh, of the order, Your Honor. Um, The the follow on order, the
2: order?
4: Yes, this is at uh, joint appendix page number uh, 230.
2: Yeah. Um, The court finds. Yes. That such statements pose a significant and immediate risk. Exactly that witnesses will be intimidated or otherwise unduly influenced by the prospect of being themselves targeted for harassment and threats. And two, attorneys, public servants, and other court staff will themselves become targets for threats and harassment. On the second part, number two, uh, applying to uh, staffs of the special counsel and of the court, the, the nexus between the concern that they be targets for threats and harassment and the administration of justice is not entirely apparent from the district court's order can you help explain that i mean the, for example the district judge is not no speech relating to the district judge is gagged that's correct and that's in part because we trust that the district judge will not be swayed by anything that the defendant says how then could the district judge's staff affect the administration of justice
4: The district of staff.
2: Yeah, any effect on them of of non criminal uh, harassment
4: threats? Well, I think exposing trial participants, whether those are uh, uh, courtroom staff, line prosecutors or others, to the risk of uh, threats, harassment, intimidation, poses uh, a systemic risk to the fairness and integrity of the proceedings. How so? It it creates a world in which people who are public servants will have to decide, do I want to handle this type of case? Do I want to press on with the sort of prosecution that we think the facts and the law demand? Or in doing so, will I run the risk that I will be threatened, my family will be threatened, uh, that that um, you know the, the, there's a chilling effect and a call passed over the whole proceedings uh, if the trial participants feel like they're at risk just as a result of their participation in the case. Separately, um, And that's,
2: you. the way you worded that, it made it sound like, before they became part of the team? Like in the future, other other staffs might hesitate before joining the team? It, is your submission also that existing staff might quit?
4: Well, I think there's certainly a risk of that. And certainly the court doesn't have to um ask each staff member, how likely are you to quit if your family receives a death threat? I don't think there's any uh, basis to, to say that in the absence of the likelihood that you will actually be deterred from doing your job, you have to tolerate uh, threats and harassment being directed towards uh, trial participants.
2: I, I had a just a sort of specific, very specific question. You mentioned the families and uh, the district court from the bench said that the gag order applied to the families of the staff. Of the court and the prosecution and the defense counsel but the written order doesn't reference that provision and but it, what is the government's position as to whether the order currently applies to family members our
4: position is that it does your honor for two reasons first the beginning of the order of course incorporates the oral uh, explanation okay. and as the court said orally the prohibition on targeting family members in her words goes without saying um and so i think she in, in district court's view um Because the prohibition extends to these specific categories of trial participants, it necessarily extends to their family members as well.
2: So it's, as I take it, your position is, is less a substantive one, that it would affect their impartiality, but is more a question of whether the people would even be willing and able to do the work.
4: It's partially that they, it would threaten whether they're willing and able to do the work could also threaten the way that they are perceived by the jury. I know that uh, my friend on the other side had suggested that the district court disavowed any sort of jury taint as a rationale for this order, but I disagree with that. What the district court did disavow was the request by the government to to include within the scope of the order, uh, post-targeting the jury pool in the district of Columbia said, that can be dealt with through voir dire, I'm not going to prohibit those statements. But I think the district court very much incorporated the idea of Trying the case in the media, polluting the jury pool, prejudicing the jury. If the jury is presented, uh, if the if the case is presented to the jury by people who, about whom there's been a uh, months-long persistent uh, drumbeat about their um, corruption, you know, inflammatory comments about them uh, in the public, that could affect how the jury perceives them. Counsel, I think.
2: Are there findings about that in the record?
4: Well, the court uh, clearly was was. Um, focused very much, not only on uh, threats to trial participants, but the way that, that this would affect the due administration of justice, the fairness of the trial, and, and so that I think incorporates um, concerns about how the trial will be presented to the jury, after.
2: So the two mechanisms you've identified, one is that individuals would be de-energized and or deterred from even being on the team, right, and the other is they might be their impartiality might be tainted in the eyes of the jury
4: that's right it's it's basically a kind of specific example of trying the case in in the media by the day that the jurors walk into court they have heard derogatory comments inflammatory comments about the people that will be presenting the case that that certainly threaten the fairness and integrity of the proceedings isn't that exactly
0: what the squad is going to sort out
4: Wardier is, is um, moderately well-situated to, to uh, address those sorts of concerns, yes. But as Gentile pointed out, the the availability of Wardier to sort out these types of prejudicial problems uh, is not kind of dispositive. The court should, in fact, take preventative measures, prophylaxis measures, to prevent the, that sort of prejudice in the first place.
3: Oh, I was just going to say, I heard you to be suggesting that it's not just that folks might be deterred from participating in the case but that the fact that they and their family are receiving threats might distract, might interfere with their ability to carry out their roles as part of the system of justice. Is that so part of Absolutely. what you're saying?
4: Absolutely. And, and if I can make just one factual point, because I know my friend on the other side has emphasized a couple of times the supposed lack of uh, any um, submission of threats being directed towards the special counsel's office, but i point the court to... Uh, page 85 of the joint appendix where it specifically says special counsel has been subject to multiple threats and the specific special counsel's office prosecutor that the defendant has targeted through recent inflammatory public posts has been subject to intimidating communication so it's not accurate to say that there have been simply no threats or that none uh, were in the record presented to the district court. Well, but talk- you-
3: I'm, going to back there. I'm sorry mm-hmm. i just was going to ask you to elaborate i think one of your first your three principal reasons was the evidentiary record yes. and I appreciate the point you just made but in discussing what is unique about this evidentiary record can you please respond to the argument that at least most of what's being relied on here is from 2020 and the fact that in opposing counsel's view there's been a lot of intense media attention and relatively fewer threats i just would like to hear what the the strongest points you think are in response to that argument?
4: Yes, Your Honor. So I think it's important to look at two aspects of the record that was before the district court. The first is uh, the fact that, to my knowledge, there has never been a criminal case, and the defendant certainly has not identified one, in which the defendant has routinely, I believe his word was incessantly, taken to uh, public uh, uh, posting to a national audience, to routinely uh, vilify the prosecutors as, as thugs, as deranged, as lunatics, to malign the court as fraud and hack, uh, and to attack witnesses uh, based on their credibility and the substance of their anticipated testimony, calling them liars, cowards, uh, weak, saying one deserves the punishment of death. That alone, I think, would be sufficient for the for the district court to act, but you combine that with a, a, a record going back a number of years, but continuing to this day, in which numerous people have been targeted as a result of uh, the defendant's posts. And I think there are 16 different people that are documented in the record, Eight of them are from the 2020, 2021 period, which I believe Judge Garcia, as you noted, is hardly um, some tangential time period uh, uh, to this case. This is exactly the core of what this case is all about, this period after the election. Some of those, of course, go through um, today. We talked about, of course, the the threat to Judge Chuckin and then... um, we, we have threats to the district attorney in New York, threats to the district attorney and the sheriff of Fulton County, threats to the former president, uh, threats to the judge, judge chambers presiding over the ongoing civil trial. These are all from the last few weeks. So the, the notion that, that there was some dynamic that existed in 2020 that has since abated or gone stale, I think is, is, is wrong. Well, how do
0: we, how do we know what he gets held accountable for. I mean, this is the internet era. Um, He's a high profile public figure who posts, has lots and lots and lots of followers. Um, But it's also covered on news channels that have listeners um, and newspapers that have readers and all manner of media can communicate his words to people of the public. How I mean, how do we? How does a district court reasonably decide which postings he is responsible for prompting adverse conduct, you know, resulting in adverse conduct, and which are he's protesting? He's 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 expressing his views as the First Amendment allows, and in a social media world cannot be held responsible for what every, everyone anywhere in the United States does when they hear about it. Two
4: answers to answer that, Your Honor. I think first is, is the sheer number of occurrences. So certainly if there had been one time when he posted something derogatory about a person and then at some point thereafter that person was was uh, a recipient of a, a threat, I don't think we would be here. The sheer number combined with the testimony of the people who experienced it on the on the receiving end who said what changed when the when the defendant tweeted about me was i started getting much more graphic much more specific much more pervasive threats when as one of the witnesses a poll worker in georgia testified to congress do you have any of that with
0: respect to his statements about this criminal
4: trial uh no um none of the people who have been directly threatened as a result of this criminal trial have have testified about that exact phenomenon although again Um, I think the the context around the threat to the district court is worth emphasizing so the indictment came down on August 1st the uh, arraignment was on August 3rd before traveling to the arraignment he uh, issued a public statement saying unfair venue unfair judge Uh, the next day he posted if you go after me I'm coming after you and the day after that the district court received the death threat. So yes, there's a, it's a matter of, um, inference, circumstantial evidence, of course, but the district court made those findings. And to judge Pillage's point earlier, those are findings of historical fact that should be reviewed for clear error. And
0: uh, cause I know you, you, referred us to, um, uh, the district court on JA 85, um, special counsel has been subject to multiple threats. That's one thing, but, but the special counsel's office, um, has been targeted through, Inflammatory public posts, I guess, intimidating communications in those inflammatory public posts. But doesn't the First Amendment protect? And and this is, to be clear, these comments have come in the course of a presidential campaign, or I guess at this point, a party nomination campaign. Um, Inflammatory language?
4: So, Your Honor, our position-
0: Surely there has, you know, I I asked them about balance for the protecting the criminal process, but I guess I'm asking your position, which doesn't seem to give much balance at all to the First Amendment's vigorous protection of political speech and the notion that high-profile public figures or, or governmental officials who've taken on enormous responsibility like prosecutors can't stand up to some inflammatory language seems to me to, to contradict Supreme Court precedent and seems to me sort of a very troubling lack of balance on the free speech side on the part of the prosecution in this case.
4: Our position, Your Honor, is not that these statements in a vacuum are unprotected. It's that genteel presupposes that the restricted language is protected as justice kennedy said there that was classic political speech directed towards the government nevertheless it can be proscribed if there's essential substantial likelihood of material prejudice to the proceedings
0: and how does how do inflammatory posts about the special prosecutor create a substantial threat of material prejudice to the proceeding
4: so that's where i think we tie it back to the to the record which is that there is a pattern. There is a dynamic. It's very clear that when the defendant engages in repeated inflammatory personal attacks on someone, there is a causal link between that person then receiving harassment, threats, and intimidation. And as I was well, uh, if there's
0: actual threats. Then that's a crime, and that can be dealt with. Yes, but also, if it's short of that, if it's, I mean, you know, again, we've had we had you know the the. Uh, Fifth and a sixth circuit cases, and if you've got someone who says that that prosecutor is out to get me, that I think there's allegations that the prosecutor's racist in one of the cases. Um, this is all a political vendetta. Are those things allowed? They're pretty inflammatory.
4: Well, they, calling someone a
0: racist is pretty inflammatory.
4: Yes, Honor, the the district court tried to craft a very narrow order that allows him ample room to uh, criticize the prosecution as political. How does motivated. it do that if
0: you say you can't target the special counsel?
4: Well, the, the district court I think draws a very clear distinction between uh, attacking uh, institutions and processes on the one hand and attack, attacking individual trial participants on the other. So saying that the prosecution is politically motivated, Set. The prosecution is an ins-
0: governmental institution, right? It's, a, it's not a personal job, but, but, it, is, but, it is the government, right? When the prosecution speaks, even when it's a independent counsel, they speak for the United States government. So I'm not sure that line works so well.
4: No, that, that's absolutely right. Maybe I was unclear. What I'm tr- saying is attacks on the prosecution uh, Calling it unfair, calling it um, politically motivated, those are all fair game. But you can't say
0: the prosecutor is politically motivated.
4: Um, that, uh, I think, well. That
0: would certainly count as targeting the prosecutor.
4: I think the special counsel himself uh, is a is a somewhat unique case because he is both an individual trial participant and very much represents the institutional interests of the Department of Justice. So for him, we would concede that merely kind of referencing him or or criticizing him, the prosecutors
0: not, working with him and, and and under his supervision, you can't say they're politically motivated. Uh,
4: if, if you're talking about individual line prosecutors, particularly if you're if you're mentioning them by name. And to know that the um, mechanism for that as judge pillard alluded to is a file a motion certainly if you think that there's some uh, political bias there's on- a
0: file a motion every single time he wants to say all the prosecutors in the office are politically biased against me to be clear it that- might be, might not be true factually might be who knows but i'm not suggesting that it is it's just a question but if if in his mind if in his view they're, you're, all the prosecutors in the office are politically biased against me. He has to file a motion before he can say that? That's not much, taking much account of the First Amendment
4: interests at stake. Well, I think if it's at such a high level of generality, everyone- How can you tell that from this order?
0: That's definitely targeting folks in the special counsel's office. So it's definitely prohibited. So I think that's why you're saying he has to go file a motion to make sure he's allowed to say that
4: the motion i'm alluding to your honor is is not a motion to ask for permission to speak about it what i'm talking about is avoiding a um, two-track process here where there are claims that get presented in court and then a whole separate um uh effort to kind of malign the people involved suggest that there's some improper uh purpose or motivation or bias that's never even raised with the court court i mean the the defendant is free of course if he thinks that there's a colorable claim of prosecutorial misconduct or prejudice likewise judicial uh to, to file a motion seeking disqualification, dismissal, and then he can talk about the fact that those findings or filings exist. But what he can't do is say, I'm going to have this turning narrative that there is a political bias, but I've never presented it to the court.
0: But, so imagine, I understand he, he hasn't participated in debates thus far, but if he were to choose to participate in a debate, and uh his um the other folks who are competing for the republican nomination let's just say they spend a lot of time talking about you know you're an indicted felon you're gonna you're being prosecuted by the united states government you're you know they'll prognosticate you're gonna you know you, you you could be found to be a criminal before the the election um And they have all this evidence against you uh, the millions of pages that they talk about in the record here. And so they're going on and on and on during the debate about this criminal prosecution and you're telling me he can't say public record prosecutors paid by the taxpayers, your names are public record, A, B, and C prosecutors. It's all a political vendetta. They all are doing the bidding of Joe Biden. Yeah, I'm not saying anything's true here. I'm just saying can, that that's not the test for free speech in this country, thankfully. He can't stand on the stage and say that.
4: So, Your Honor, he can certainly say this politically motivated prosecution brought by my political opponent, the Department of Justice is corrupt. Um, uh, I will be vindicated at trial, all of that stuff. But when he starts naming individuals- He has to
0: speak mismanners while everyone else is, is throwing um, um, targets at him. Well, and it can't be that he can't mention Mr. Smith, who,
2: I mean, for most people in the United States, given the number of legal uh, battles in which this defendant is embroiled, the only, one, the, the, the easiest way people have of referring to this case as opposed to the others is oh, Jack Smith. Surely he is has a thick enough skin. He's on this team. The two interests that you mentioned, which are one the uh, person would be dissuaded. I have little doubt that he will not be dissuaded. Uh, And then the other, that his impartiality or integrity would be impugned in the face of the jury. First of all, I'm not sure I see the district court having made any such determination or even followed that reasoning. Um, Am I missing? something supportive of that, of that link.
4: Well, I I think it's very clear that the discord is because the, the, whole rationale is premised on ensuring the integrity of the proceedings and the fairness of the trial of course the court wants to make sure that the jury is not presented with extraneous information that would not be admissible in court that could uh, prejudice their determinations and i think part and parcel of that is how they view the trial participants but but to, to go back
2: to well, how can i mean i guess judge molette has already asked these questions given all of the issues that are both before the court in this case and before the public in the election it's hard to see how this portion of uh, the restrictive order is going to succeed in preventing a trial in the court of public opinion
4: well again
1: w- I
2: took her her order to more be focused on protecting individuals protecting witnesses from uh, threats from harassment from Um, you know, fawning and and efforts to positively motivate them and the like. Um, Not to shield the veneer, but you take a different view.
4: Well, no, I think I would agree that that is the principal motivation, certainly, shielding uh, people from harassment, threats and intimidation, both witnesses and other trial participants. uh, And certainly that includes, um, you know, the line prosecutors handling the case, again, special counsel himself is a, is a slightly different uh, case because he is both an individual trial participant and a representative of the institution. And so that's why we would say that, that merely mentioning him would not violate the court. that would not be targeted. Uh, whereas it, it, in the debate, your honor, if. Well, just uh, so, it, I do I do
0: want to hear that answer. Obviously I was going to ask the question, but before I do, I'm still struggling with how you distinguish, but I, I mean, you know, maybe the, uh, um, Special prosecutor is in somewhat different place, but that does not mean that prosecutors working with him, assistant prosecutors or whatever the title deputies are not public figures
4: themselves. Would you agree? They, they can be public figures for certain purposes. Okay. But- so
0: then it shouldn't matter. Why can't on the debate stage, and I guess now you can do that answer <laughs> on the debate stage. Why can't? defendants say, A, B, and C, whoever is the prosecutorial team in the particular case, biased, racist, anti-American, I think whatever con- deplorable adjectives.
4: I think in context, I think you'd have to view that as, as basically the Meddlesome Priest problem. Why is he mentioning individual line prosecutors, but for holding them up, to, to um, uh, scorn in the public and increasing the likelihood well, of their Well, I uh, have being to targeted. say
0: they make a good point that I'm not sure that, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priests. might not have a more First Amendment debate? You'd have to really make the showing, you know, if it's sort of the godfather. <laughs> will someone get rid of the snitch for me? That's one thing. But you'd have to make that kind of showing. But, you know, if, if a high level, if someone high up says, well, someone just make this problem go away, could he not say, well, someone just make these cases go away? It's a political vendetta. Let the American people decide. Can you not say that?
4: Someone make these people, the, these cases go away, this is a political vendetta, that, that would be consistent with the order. That would not violate it, yes.
0: So tell me about your debate, what your view of... Boy, I, I, it would be really hard in when everyone else is going at you full bore and you know, your attorneys will have to have scripted little things that you can say.
4: Your honor I respectfully disagree that there'd be anything particularly challenging about a rule that says naming individual line prosecutors um, somehow, you know, is too complicated, too hard to follow. He can say everything he wants to say. You don't think
0: he can name line prosecutors by name?
4: I, I think. That would be presumptively an act of targeting. Context could uh, uh, could suggest otherwise, but but naming. Well, I, what
0: context do you need? I've got my debate here. Uh, it's it's a matter of matter of public record. You're receiving the pay of you're paid by the taxpayers, and he can't say by name that person. Once
2: you you've appeared and spoken
0: in open court in the case against him.
4: Our view is that is presumptively targeting within the meaning of the order, but- It's
0: targeting because you were in front of the special counsel.
4: That's right. It's, it's targeting because- uh, What's naming, your definition of target? Targeting uh, in, in our view means singling someone out for the sort of negative attention that poses uh, a significant immediate risk of there being uh, a recipient of threats, harassment, and intimidation. But, but
2: negative is viewpoint based. So the district court corrected, the reason she chose targeting instead of the language that you proposed was because she didn't want to make the order viewpoint based. and make it more defensible but I think you're right that the targeting does raise a little bit of unclarity and I wonder whether you comment on the on the proposed alternative that I mentioned to Mr. Sauer which is if the order prohibited comment on any reasonably foreseeable witness or the court staff uh, but let me limit it to the witnesses reasonably foreseeable witness because of witnesses potential participation in the trial because one of the difficulties is, is disaggregating the public figures who are in, in the political arena uh, in other ways, writing books or, you know, and who are anticipated to testify at trial here. Is that, uh, does that do the work that you need? Uh, does it pose different constitutional concerns that I'm not appreciating?
4: I don't think it poses any uh, additional constitutional concerns. I think that would be a, a perfectly valid gloss on that portion of targeting. Um, I do think it, it omits another important component, which is this concern about exposing people to, to threats, harassment, intimidation. So if the defendant were to say, you know, not by, with any reference to their testimony, but to say this person, you know, is uh, a coward, a liar, and a treason, and deserves a punishment of death. Without any reference to what the substance of the testimony would be, I think that would still violate the order.
2: Except, couldn't you, you know, given context that there's no other reason that this person's being targeted? You say the reason they're talking about that is because of the testimony. Whereas, you know, when General Milley has written a, a book and has spoken publicly about his uh, efforts to shield uh, the world from the consequences of the defendants
4: conduct that has got to be fair game certainly fair game to comment on i know i don't think it, uh, anybody suggests otherwise um uh, but i think it's, it's so what's not fair game so he ha- he can comment yes and
2: he can comment very critically
4: what can he not do use the sort of inflammatory language that poses a, a significant risk that they will be subject to threats harassment and intimidation and so you know i don't think the line between saying um, conduct like this by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is intolerable in democratic society. And saying, on the other hand, this uh, this is warrants the punishment of death, is a particularly um, abstract or, or difficult line to draw.
2: Yeah. Um, so it's it's thing comments that will predictably trigger the loyalist zeal or what Mr. Sauer refers to as the heckler's veto. And I, that just took me a long time to figure out what he was referring to in terms of heckler's veto. But it's it's the triggering third-party conduct what I would tag as the loyalist's zeal. That's right. That's what you're aiming at is that, that the defendant can comment on all kinds of things, but when he does so in a way likely to trigger this excessive zeal, that that, that is what you're, what, how you read the district court is targeting that kind of
1: bar, yes, right.
4: or
2: barring that kind of speech.
4: Yes, right. And, and going back, um, Judge Lauter. What's well, so the I'm
0: oh, sorry. Well, uh, I didn't interrupt ask asking, my, my questions. <laughs> Go ahead. But then I do want to talk a little more on this Mark Milley thing, General Milley.
4: Um, going back to the question about you know what what can he say during the debate? I mean I, I think it's also worth looking at some of the things that he said in TV interviews and even in uh, one of the posts that the district court used as an example in the order denying the motion to stay of what's permissible. So in that post, he's talking about um, you know the the. Uh, political bias in this prosecution, how it's been brought by the, the incumbent administration. And he says at trial, we will 100 percent prove with evidence that you know, that the election that I won the election and so forth. He can he can always say what every other criminal defendant in every other case says. Once we get to trial, I'm going to prove all this uh, with evidence. The necessity to single out trial participants that have not been the subject of any sort of litigation, just as sort of a, a, a per, you know a personal singling out just to put their name in the public, I think is presumptively an of target. So
0: if I'm on j 130 which is the, the General Milley post, can you tell me which parts of that were, because this was this was the day after General Milley did an interview about his book. It wasn't right after the indictment. It says nothing about the criminal trial or General Milley's prospective role or not in it. And so tell me, what of this, is everything okay except the the punishment would have been death? Is everything else okay?
4: Yes, I would say so. And I think the, the important context to uh, um, no, know when reviewing... Is he, is he
0: wrong that, I'm not talking factually about this particular situation, about which obviously we have none of the details before us, but is it wrong, at least historically, that again not talking about this conduct in particular but but some acts of treason were published punishable by death
4: no that's not wrong and, okay. and the district court it was free to isn't to, that all he said well uh, the discourse was free to to decide whether he included that language to make kind of the abstract historical point about what uh the punishment for treason was in times gone by or was he saying it um to to uh, well, what do you I, I
0: think for for because we I've talked at least about the need to balance um and you know um it's not how I want my children to speak but that's really not the question and so the question is what in here in this post including the reference to historical capital punishment for treason connects that to the criminal trial connects anything about this post to the criminal trial the criminal process general Milley's potential or not, I don't have no idea participation in the criminal trial.
4: So on its face, it doesn't allude to his testimony, but it's important the to the timing, you don't have the timing, it's not like do, the defendant. Uh, we do have an important uh, distinction in timing, mm-hmm. which is that the information about General Milley and his conversations with uh, with China, that all came out in twenty twenty one. The defendant had a reaction to, to that news then. He was not calling for him to be put to death, su- suggesting that death was an appropriate punishment. He started doing that once he once he was indicted- Wasn't he,
0: this the day after General Milley did an interview about his book? Yes, yes. Okay, so, well- So
4: it was in the news again, but his reaction to it post indictment, once he knew that, that General Milley was a potential trial witness was very different than what his reaction was in 2021 when General Milley was not a potential trial witness against him, and so-
0: So pretty much once there's an indictment, he just can't, he's really, he can't under this order, he just really can't say anything about folks who are either known or, or reasonably foreseeable witnesses.
4: I, I disagree, I think I think. Can say? there's a perfectly comprehensible line between the sorts of things that use inflammatory and disparaging language. Uh, that are Can likely. you say
0: anything disparaging I think about th- someone? You just said inflammatory, disparaging, so take off inflammatory. Is he allowed to say anything disparaging about someone? We'll make it easy that he knows is going to be a witness now that there's been an indictment. Between now and the trial, obviously after trial is a different
4: thing. I think he can criticize them so long as he's not using either inflammatory language or attacking their credibility in a way that's going to shape how the jury sees them. That's another example of trying the case in the media.
2: I'm trying to understand with respect to these high, high public figures, they like everyone else in the country is, are protected against true threats. They're protected against criminal efforts to affect their testimony. They can be prosecuted for that. Um, I mean, he, the defendant could be prosecuted for threatening them in, a, in violation of the criminal law. But when we step back and think about a protective order to protect the integrity of the proceeding, the mechanism is that they would be their testimony would be affected? I, I
4: think it's, it, that's very hard for me to well, imagine. I, I don't think that the test is whether any particular witness who is targeted will actually um, uh, change their testimony or refuse to or, testify. Or
2: that it would be reasonably foreseeable that, you know, because you're right, this is a prophylactic situation. I would assume that their testimony would not be affected, that Mr. Barr, General Milley, Vice President, former Vice President Pence. I take part of your position to be that there's a performance of their vulnerability that then would affect unknown non-public figure witnesses. That's
4: exactly right. clear kind of knock on effects. if you're a witness out there and there are many many witnesses who fall in this category not public officials no uh recourse to marshals or secret service protection if they see that that general milley can be suggested he needs he should be put to death if they see the former chief of staff can be called a, a coward uh then then they are going to absolutely be childish and why would i come forward and give the facts that I know about this case, if the result is gonna be that I'll be subject to the same treatment. This is a very
2: small question and it it reveals my uh, lack of technical prowess, but is there any way preventatively to protect someone's um, technology? Like, let's say I'm a prospective juror. Can I be protected technologically from like boxing?
4: Um, well, uh, you're, you're asking about whether there are t- uh, available technology that would sort of remove your personal information from the. Or internet? just
2: that would filter. I don't know that if things start coming through that are so fast and furious from strangers. I mean, because it does seem like there's there's a real phenomenon that is actually quite disabling and, and terrifying.
4: Yes, absolutely, there is.
2: And, but I'm wondering whether there are ways in anticipation of that 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 can be mitigated short of, because we do have, as you appreciate, the problem of speech by uh, the defendant, and then it, it has the knock-on effect with the loyalists' zeal, and that's you know then what causes direct uh, efforts at threatening and harassing um, individuals. And I just wonder if there's any non-protective order, are, are there tools?
4: I'm not aware of technological tools that would work nearly as well as as mitigating this prejudice at the source. If they exist, I think they are not widely used and 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 not easy to to um, incorporate, particularly uh, for every witness and every potential juror and so forth.
3: Can I? I just want to clarify a few things about the scope of the order as you see it. So, you mentioned you think that one of the interests in this order is, uh, protecting sort of jury perceptions. So one of the examples in the district court transcript is essentially X is a slimy liar without any more context. Is it the government's view that that's prohibited by this order?
4: Yes, your honor. If it's directed towards a foreseeable trial, witness, yes.
3: So it's bill Barr goes on 60 minutes and gives an interview and criticizes Mr. Trump's fitness for office in part January 6th, the events related to January 6th, Mr. Trump can't go online and say everything he just said is false.
4: Everything he just said is false. I think is different from from using either inflammatory language or attacking his credibility directly. I know that that's a little bit of a fine line. Um, but but yes, I think. Uh, if, if it's a direct attack on credibility or an inflammatory comment that's likely to result in threats and harassment, that's one thing. If it's just a generalized criticism of his performance as the attorney general or disagreement with what he has said, I think that would be another. Is, it, is, it, it, is,
0: is, is slimy liar inflammatory?
4: Uh, I, think, I think it's uh, uh, inflammatory and a direct comment on credibility. What
0: if he just said he's a liar?
4: Well, <clears throat> I, I think that also would be a comment on credibility that would be prohibited by the order.
0: And so it doesn't have to be Oh, Calling someone liars liar is itself inflammatory.
4: That uh, liar itself would not fall into the category of inflammatory. So any or,
0: attack on the credibility of someone who's uh, a prospective witness. Yes, yes, sir. So it's deeper into the campaign, um, and uh, and someone who um, is done testifying, but the trial is still going on, goes out and campaigns with the Democratic nominee. Brings him up on stage. This is why you should vote for me. Heard what he said about what would happen. If we had another Trump administration, he's got a whole book. It's on sale at the table over there. Special discount for people attending the rally. But now stand up here at the podium, Mr. X and tell us about your experiences working with him and why I should be president instead of him. All this is going on, and you are telling me that former President Trump, the First Amendment, balance in the criminal process, would not allow him to say, Mr. Axe is a liar. He's lying in what he said. I was a good president. He can't say that.
4: He can certainly say I was a good president. I disagree with everything. He, that can't, he, said. he
0: can't, I'm sorry. You can say I disagree, but he can't say he lied.
4: The, these are our corner cases. I would agree where uh, No, you,
0: you, you didn't have any hesitation in telling me that he couldn't do it. I don't think it didn't seem like a tough case to you. He said, no, he can't, can't call anyone a liar. Can't you said can't comment on credibility.
4: Yes, we, we think commenting on a, on a witness's credibility about the substance of their testimony is presumptively no, this, he's
0: commenting on the credibility about what they said at the political rally.
4: That's right, it, and if it goes to the substance of their testimony and it's about their credibility, then it's presumptively violative. We'll say
0: 10% of what he said related to the trial testimony that Mr. X gave the day before, and 90% did not, but just was a tirade against the political opponent. <laughs> of the person on whose behalf he's speaking, a tirade against the former President Trump in in the midst of the election.
4: So he he has a lot of space to say, I I disagree with everything that he said, we're going to prove at trial that what he said is not true. But when he's trying the case in the media and, uh, you know, uh, look, a, a single word like that's a lie, that's a liar. I think it's extremely unlikely that the government's not going to be moving. Is for it covered so by false? the
0: order? I don't want to know whether the government's moving for it. I want to know whether it falls within the scope of this order that is being challenged on First Amendment grounds. And I think you've said repeatedly that yes, it is. Yes, Maybe you'll exercise restraint, but yes, he it, says it. that when someone has just attacked him viciously in the press with their views, I shouldn't say attacked him, but has un- unloaded his very political dynamite. Against him, and he can't say, can he say it's untrue? with that person that is untrue, can he say that? He can't, yes. Okay, but he can't say that person speaks, is an untruth speaker.
4: <laughs> if it's about the, the. Can he say
0: they're an untruth speaker?
4: Y- yes. he but can can't say, that. say they're a liar. But the, the sorts of attacks on credibility, he is a liar.
0: So his attorneys, when he says, "Here's my speech. Here's what I want to say," and they have to x out liar and put in untruth speaker.
4: Now that they have to put in untruth speaker. They have to they have to avoid a, a direct. Do you have sentence. another?
0: Do you have another word we could put in instead of untruth speaker? Sure. What what he said was untrue, and here's why. No, he wants to talk about that person's character penchant for untruthfulness.
4: Th- that's right. I think that's exactly the point. If he's talking about his character for truthfulness or untruthfulness. That is, is I mean, t- trying the, the case uh, in, in the media. It's just, and there's there's just a balance
0: a going that has to be undertaken here, um, and it's a very difficult balance in this context, and we certainly want to make sure that the criminal trial process and its integrity and its truth-finding function are protected, but we've got to use a careful scalpel here and not step into really sort of skewy in the political arena don't we
4: i, I agree with that but i think the, the order as properly interpreted strikes the appropriate balance it leaves an ample room to to respond to these things to say that these things are untrue to say what defendants in every case and, and what is the strongest i mean a lot of the cases as as you're well aware about uh
2: the interest in a fair trial are in cases that are protecting uh criminal defendants against a prejudiced process bias in the process there are some mostly dicta about the government's interest or the broader systemic interest in a fair trial what's your what's your strongest support for uh for the order in terms of the government's interest
4: that's right so the sixth amendment right is a right to a fair trial by an impartial jury And as the court says in Gentile, which of course was speech by a defense attorney, the state also has a right, uh, an interest in a fair trial that needs to be protected by prohibiting prejudicial, extrajudicial speech. And that's consistent with how the court treats other Sixth Amendment rights. So for example, uh, the defendant has a right to a speedy trial. He doesn't have a right to delay his trial for as long as he wants because the, the government and the public also have an interest in a speedy trial, even though it's textually Invested, uh, in the defendant likewise the defendant has a right to a trial by jury but he doesn't have a right to unilaterally demand uh, a bench trial if the government on behalf of the public thinks a jury trial is more appropriate so there's nothing unusual about saying that that the right to an impartial jury means that the government uh, uh, also has a right to, to fair trial
2: in the um in the order one of the one of the terms is political rival how would you define that is that i mean now uh former vice president pence is no longer running are there no political rivals any longer or is a political rival is it really a synonym for public figure like millie Barr, the like i,
4: I think the court intended it to be um uh, equivalent to people who are running against him um if the court felt like it was necessary to uh interpret political figure more broadly to encompass um, people like the former attorney general, former joint chiefs of staff. We would understand, you know, that that I think could be a permissible gloss if necessary to make this order sufficiently narrow. But, but I think what the district court intended was to refer to people who were running against him. If I may make just um, a couple. Can of- let me
2: just ask one one more thing. You had, I believe, when you sought the the order that's before us. We'd also ask the district court to amend the um, conditions of release with similar terminology, and the district court denied that. What's what's at stake as between putting terms like this in in conditions of release and doing an order under Rule
4: 57? So two thoughts on that, The first, which I hope is not too tangential to your question, but I do think uh, my friend's concession that these sorts of restrictions including on contacting witnesses and other uh portions of the bail reform act are consistent with the first amendment i think is a fatal concession to their whole legal standard i mean if it if it's true that a defendant is uh, consistent with the first amendment can be restricted from Communicating with witnesses, associating with other people, just on the standard of uh, reasonable assurance of the safety of the community, and I think it follows from that that their clear and present danger test and their demand for for evidence proving its imminence can't be right. Um, what's at stake in uh, doing it under? But
2: don't individual terms that are imposed under the
4: Bail Reform Act also receive constitutional scrutiny? Constitutional scrutiny, but but the but the test is, you know, it does, is this. Will this reasonably assure their appearance of trial of the safety of any person or of the community? It's not, um, it, it, is this, is there compelling evidence that it, a clear and present danger? Uh, well, that's the
3: statutory test. We don't really know what the First Amendment test is, right? I don't think we've been cited cases that involve challenge to the bail condition. Is that right?
4: Well, that's right, Your Honor. But, but I think it would be quite extraordinary to suggest that his position here somehow would, uh, well, I think his position here, if carried to its logical conclusion, wouldn't necessarily cast doubt on the constitutionality of all of these routinely imposed provisions of the Bail Reform Act, when courts have, routine, have uh upheld uh, uh, those for years.
2: I think but, it would have to be. Uh, I mean, there would have to be a constitutional analysis. Isn't that what Salerno did? Yes. And so, something more fulsome speech restriction would have to be looked at under under the Constitution.
4: Well, it'd have to be certainly have to be looked at no one and it wouldn't
2: be whether it would reasonably assure their
4: appearance at trial I I think it would I think these sorts of restrictions are imposed all the time don't contact this particular person don't you know post the the witness list uh, on social media these are done if they reasonably assure uh, the safety of another person or the uh, uh, appearance of the person and and I don't think any court has has really cast doubt on their constitutionality um,
2: going back to the question, but, but yeah, you had you had been more broadly responding to the question that I asked about sort of what's at stake, whether it's a Rule 57 order or for a,
4: or a condition of pretrial release. That's right. So, so um, we requested modification of the bail conditions uh, in response to the motion to stay. The district court denied it on procedural grounds without prejudice. It may well be that at some point in the future, uh, either we or the district court find it necessary to to also modify conditions of release. The remedies that are available are are a little bit different. The procedures are a little bit different here, there would have to be, you know, show cause hearing if there's a violation, proof of of willful uh, violation for for criminal contempt. Um, So the mechanisms are slightly different, the standards are slightly different, but I don't think the constitutional uh, analysis is is any different.
2: So what's, so the the show cause hearing um, and proof of state of mind for violation of the Rule 57 order? That's right. And for revocation of uh, bail or
4: release be clear and convincing evidence of a violation of a condition so not a ton of daylight between those but um, but just a slightly different standard
0: you have sorry we're you gonna that you're gonna make a comment <laughs> you rely on the gentile case from the supreme court um but um uh, your friend on the other side makes a quite relevant point that An awful lot of the language in there and analysis was focused on the fact that it was counsel. Uh, Attorneys choose their profession. They take oaths. They are officers of the court. I don't know of anybody who chooses to be a criminal defendant. Um, And we have, as part of our criminal trial process, you know, very robust protections for criminal defendants. And it's true, most criminal defendants on the advice of counsel say nothing publicly, but if a criminal defendant wishes to speak, why why would the genteel balance that was struck there apply specifically to criminal defendants who really have a a special status, a special protected status, and their ability to do... um, to to resist the government's action against them.
4: So I think Gentile, as as I think Judge Garcia was mentioning, was colloquy with my friend, really clarifies that what the relevant distinction is, is trial participants on the one hand, strangers to the litigation on the other. And that draws on Shepard, which lists trial participants, including the accused, alongside defense counsel as people whose speech can be restricted if it poses substantial likelihood of material prejudice to the proceedings. In Gentile, I think it was important to the court to explain why an attorney also was subject to those same restrictions. Um, It might not be obvious to the lay reader why an attorney uh, can can be um, prohibited from making certain extrajudicial statements. I think the justification for why a defendant who is, is been charged by the grand jury with committing felony is subject to similar or comparable restrictions, I think is, is almost more self-evident. Uh, as Salerno said, criminal defendants are routinely subject well, to-, if, to I, if I
3: may, I think part of the question was specifically about Gentile's emphasis on the History of regulation of attorney speech. Are you saying that there's a similar tradition and history of the regulation of criminal defendant speech to that same degree? I think it's it's or is it the, just the other pieces of the opinion?
4: No. So I think um, why Gentile uh, included a long discussion of of the historic regulation of attorneys has to do with the fact that um, they needed a justification to help explain why attorneys who at first blush might seem like they have more speech rights than other trial participants are in fact equal to other trial participants. Seattle Times, I think, already illustrates uh, that a party to the litigation, even a newspaper, can be restricted from uh, revealing um, comments or revealing any information they've received in the course of the litigation. And so, yes, I do think there is a a long um, history of, of defendants being subject to restraints on their liberty as a result of the indictment but the um,
2: seattle times that that interest is taken care of by a separate order in this case
4: also right this, yes the protective order yes yes so
2: that's that's not the really direct support for what for this kind of order
4: it, it's it's important because um seattle times says specifically that when it's a, a um, even a civil litigant who is a newspaper who comes in inf- information through the court proceedings, then the standard is not kind of the Nebraska Press standard. It's not clear and present danger. It's it's uh, something lower in that case, Good, just good cause.
0: Why shouldn't there be three categories?
4: Those outside the
0: trial for media, but could be other commenters. Um, participants and the criminal defendant. Why doesn't our history of um, allowing criminal defendants to vigorously and, and equipping them to vigorously defend against the government warrant, there, I don't think there's any history of regulation. Um, why doesn't that require something more exacting than the genteel test? Maybe not clear in present danger, but as, as I asked your friend on the other side, is there anything between genteel? and clear and present danger
4: it would be appropriate in your view or is it genteel we think the genteel standard applies certainly and, and um the the idea that defendants are have kind of a uniquely expanded set of rights as compared to other trial participants i think is is clearly uh, contrary to um the long history of of uh, uh making them subject to uh imprisonment or being held in detention pre-trial uh all sorts of restrictions yeah, but, but
0: being detained requires a showing you know a hard actual showing of actual risk of flight or threat to public safety we're now talking about a type of order that doesn't require immediate facts to issue that's clear from nebraska it's you said you have Common wisdom and judgment can be part of the analysis of what's going on in the world, and so and and and, and we live in a we live in a free society where um, it's incredibly hard for government to lock a citizen up. Has to be because that's the first tool of oppressive governments, and so to be clear, they need to do it sometimes, and it can be done. But we have set up a lot of you know, pro-defendant, make it really hard for the government requirements, because we don't want to be like other countries. And I, I'm asking is why that wouldn't include allowing a criminal defendant, for example, to publicly say that person who just had a press conference denouncing me is a liar.
4: So my reference to pretrial detention was only to illustrate kind of the most extreme Mm -hmm. but again if you look at the bail reform act which i think uh, the what the bail reform act Uh which encompasses a number of provisions that had preceded that under the court's inherent power defendants can be made to seek a job commence an education um have a curfew these are all standards that couldn't possibly be imposed on a third party to the litigation based on a similar showing They're imposed because, as a result of the operation of the criminal justice system and the indictment, a defendant's— Well, and we haven't seen First Amendment challenges to
0: those, but here we have a First Amendment challenge that we've got to grapple with.
4: Well, I think I would would sort of push back on the notion that that all of the provisions of the Bail Reform Act are are violative of the First Amendment. I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying
0: that we have a particular— restriction here. Yes. And so I and guess a particular challenge that we have to resolve. And so saying a statute it lets you do lots of things, it's not so much an answer to my constitutional
4: question. Well, I was trying to answer it in the context of the historical. This is analogous to uh, the analysis in genteel about the historical uh, practice of regulating attorneys. There's also a similar historical practice about regulating the, the speech and association rights of defendants that has never been uh, thought to violate the First Amendment so that that's why i think as brown explained Do you have no backup higher standard that you would propose well i think because clear and present danger as you mentioned in the colloquy with my friend it's not kind of a clear doctrinal test it's meant to get at the imminence and the significance of the threat um you see in the levine case from the ninth circuit it's i can't remember the exact wording but it's something along the lines of significant and immediate which is the standard that actually the district court here found so so I, I think conceivably you could articulate a standard that was somewhere in between, but because the clear and present danger standard is sort of a, a malleable one that doesn't dictate a doctrinal test, I, I don't know that that's necessary, but, but our view is certainly clear and present danger, excuse me, clear and present danger is wrong, mm-hmm. substantial likelihood of material prejudice is one. Thank
0: you very much, we appreciate your extra time. Thank you. All right, sorry, Mr. Sauer. We will give you four minutes for rebuttal.
1: Nothing further.
0: Right. Okay, do you want to stand up in case our my colleagues have any questions? Do you have any more questions? No? All right, thank you very much. With that, with the thanks to council for your very helpful presentations and your patience with us, the case is submitted.